three. Oh, you've gone off. Okay. All right. So three, two, one, and we're live. Okay. Mike, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. How's it? How's it going up there in Canada? You, you're you're grounded in uh, Calgary, is that right? Yeah, near to Calgary, I'm in a little town of Okotoks, where my uh, younger brother. I mean, I was down in California when this sort of viral thing started happening, and I had a ticket onward to Europe, and then I couldn't board my flight. So it was already, this was like a few months ago, and it already was starting to hit just then. So I just missed by one day being able to fly to Europe. So as a result, you know, I couldn't do, I couldn't stay in California because you know how expensive the um, healthcare is out in the states. I mean, if you ever came down with anything. It, you could be out 50 grand or 100 grand if you, you come down with something serious. And I only had so much health insurance bought for that particular trip. So you, the only time I'd buy health insurance is going to the U.S. So I had to return to Canada. So that's the end of my 30-year backpacking trip. Pretty shit, isn't it? Yeah. It's like yeah. So the world, the world's nonstop and now, <laughs> go Yes, the world's most traveled man is now grounded. Oh, my God. I mean, uh, how are you coping? Is the travel bug bit you and you're like, you're in it? In in oh, it's pretty, it's pretty hard. But, you know, I've been talking to lots of friends around the world. There's no way to get anywhere. I mean, I was just talking this morning with, um, you know, I was talking to, a, we do like group chat sometimes, like one guy's in Portugal, one's in Brazil, one's in Texas, one in California, one out in uh, Kiev, and, you know, other places as well. And we're all trying to figure out where we can get. And I heard that maybe Portugal was opening, but then my buddy in Portugal was saying he hadn't heard of that. And then another buddy was saying that maybe uh, Minsk is open, but I'm not sure about that either. And he might try to go in there, but he's got a um, he's got a permanent resident residency stamp for uh, Ukraine, so he's thinking he could get into there. But I don't have one, so I'm not sure what would happen at the border for me. So it's really hard to figure out the borders at this time, and and it's been so long now. You know, it's so many months have passed that there's no way I can say that. Oh, okay, yeah, I'm still backpacking. I really, I'm not. Like my, my all my possessions are in one backpack and it is completely emptied. Everything's out on the floor. I mean, I'm not backpacking at all. So that that's thirty years <laughs> at an end. At least it's not even in a cupboard. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not, not on the cupboard yet. But you know, all my worldly possessions are all uh, yeah out on the ground now. It's yeah, strange feeling not traveling. Yeah, I mean, at least you're with your brother at the moment, which you know sort of like makes it a mediocre familiarity. You know, like shit really goes down, then you've got family to back you up kind of thing yeah that's true and also people are not quarantining so bad here in okotoks it's kind of a small town so i uh -huh. think a total of one person with a mask and then once so i would go out on maybe two two hours of walking a day through the parks and along the river and i pass a lot yeah. of cyclists and people picnicking and there's one time i heard someone like be kind of a karen saying to me like oh you're just walking and you have no mask but he's that's only once there's over months of, of walking for hours a day and then there was one person i saw with a mask that was it so I don't think people are really taking the quarantine too seriously here. But the yeah. problem is there's almost no flights out of the Calgary airport. And uh, coming in and out of Canada is really restricted. So, you know, it's there's no traveling, even if the quarantine's not as bad as it might have been. Yeah, it's quite the opposite situation here in Hong Kong. We see, we've see we definitely got the, 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 the infection rate under control. Um, but, you know, like you've, you've got a mandatory 14-day quarantine coming in only for people who have Hong Kong permanent residency. Um, uh, or, you know, like the, the visa to, to come in. Um, and, you know, currently I think the infection, we've got about 23 new infections and you, wherever you walk on the streets, even though we know that there is no, you know, everything's pretty clear, everybody wears a mask. It's just... Yeah, I only yeah. saw one. 
Yeah, I don't even own a mask. I, I haven't put on a mask at all. <laughs> I don't even know oh well, I suppose, I mean, if you're so far away from most people, you can just sort of like, you know, take it. Yeah, nice. I mean, I noticed some, some dung from a bear on one of my walks, not too far. It's where I used to take the dog out. It's only like 20 minutes from here. Oh, God, so the animals are coming out. The animals are getting yeah, more yeah. courageous. I went on a walk yesterday through a swamp as well. Like one of my Scottish friends came down, and he usually goes canoeing, but he was a little bit worried about the, the um, river being a bit strong. So he, he often does Arctic canoeing, actually, but now he's just doing stuff near Calgary because of the uh, you know the virus problem. But um, he was afraid to go on the water uh, yesterday, so we went walking in a swamp instead, my brother and him. <laughs> so it was pretty good fun making our way to the swamp, going through some hills. Yeah, what animals we can see. <laughs> so, okay, you, you're the author of of this book over here. The world, Mike Spencer Bound, the world's most traveled man, yeah. world's most traveled man. You know, a 23 year odyssey to and through every country on the planet. Yeah, that was seven years ago when I'd only traveled for 23 years. <laughs> oh, I see. That's how, long, that's how long it took me to see all the the various countries. So it was a pretty long trip. I tried to make it quite thorough. Uh, right, yeah. I mean, 23 years, maybe. Mm -hmm. Doesn't sound thorough enough, that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I could have spent, like, way longer in... Um, like, some countries I've only spent, like, a month in it. You know, I could have spent much longer. And there's even some tiny countries. Like, for instance, for the Vatican, I've been there a couple times, and I only really went for maybe three or four hours. And I saw one of the popes come out and give a speech. But there's some countries I spent quite a minimal time, you know, especially for the small ones. And then the right. bigger ones like to go multiple times. And, and I mean, like, okay, so, like, do you plan on going and redoing the smaller ones? Like, just, like, make sure it's a thorough cover coverage kind of thing. I mean, I suppose well, living I in Well, I found that it was something... so thorough that even when countries split apart, I had already seen them. So, for instance, when I was doing Ukraine for the first time, I mean, I've probably been to 10 times to Ukraine now. When I was doing it for the first time, I noticed that Crimea seemed a bit restive. And I thought, ooh, that's, that sucker's going to break away. So I went and looked at it quite thoroughly. And then so later, now it's been lopped off and it's sort of, a, a difficult area to travel to. It doesn't matter because I've already already been there, right? So I, I, I did that with, since I went to the countries quite thoroughly, I also caught the areas that have now broken apart. And I just pay special attention if a country failed the taxi test. Uh, the taxi test my way to know if they're about to have a civil war. And that's if you get in with a taxi and you're riding along, you got to ask yourself, is every single taxi guy just yelling and shouting about how he hates such and such people or he hates the people from the north or the east or the west or whatever it is. If they're all going off about how much they hate each other, then you're like, oh, no. And then always within a couple of years after that, civil war. So that's the Mike Spencer Don taxi test for civil <laughs> yeah, war. Taxi test, yeah. <laughs> and I got worried. Like when I was in Yemen, I'm like, oh, no, they failed the taxi test. I wasn't thinking they would, but, uh, you know, I was in um, Aden in, in the south. And yeah. they were really talking about how much they hated people from Sanaa. So, uh, yeah. But you were in Mog. I mean, you, you, even war-torn countries absolutely have no. You, you've not have zero fear in the world. You were in Mogadishu. Uh, I don't think they're too. To my view, they're not that risky. You know, I don't mind going even through Mogadishu. That was even with tank fire everywhere. And you know, Mogadishu was quite rough back then. It's a little bit easier now, but um, I don't mind that. I mean, I always found the wilderness was more dangerous. Like, I, I was used to really intense wilderness experiences before, and that was way more dangerous. Like, if you get, like, angry forest elephants coming at you or um, mountain lions or bears, things like that, it's much more risky. Or even just starvation in the bush. I mean, I've almost starved a few times out there. So when you, you kind of get ill or you damage yourself a bit, and then you're relying yeah. on living off the land, but suddenly you're, you're a bit crippled, and it's hard to, uh, hard to get enough fish or berries or whatever. That yeah, can get quite dangerous. 
So reading your book, there's a few instances I would have like thought, I thought, you know, I'd really have loved to have the, exactly this sort of experience to have with you to, to ask you questions. One of the things that you said was apparently you got so like in tune and in touch with nature that you were able to almost walk up to a deer. Yeah, you can notice the gaps in their consciousness because you, after a while, you're so much in tune with the deer and with nature in general that you, you can see their, their brain flickering through different modes. And you realize some of those modes are insufficiently um, attentive to their surroundings to be able to detect you. You move forward in that, but as you can notice when the deer flips into a, another mode where you have to be more careful and just stop. So you can just become so in tune with the deer's mind that you can, uh, you're almost like you're melding minds with it. And it just shows how dangerous a human can be as a predator. I mean, the thing is, I, I wouldn't want to try to sneak up on a human who was like a sniper in the jungle or something. It's almost impossible. If you get into that deep bush mode, you have extraordinary sensory abilities. Like, I even realized once in my sleep, actually several times I've realized in my sleep that, for instance, someone had driven into a valley that was 50 kilometers away. And I could just hear the, the sound of the, uh, the engine. And, the, you know, my, I would dream and know, oh, someone's coming up the valley. And then and when they go into the bush, I'd even hear that. You can hear everything. Eventually, you're just like attuned. Like, you can hear, even in the middle of night, even while you're sleeping, you can tell what animal is what by the sound they're making as they walk through the bush, even a kilometer or two kilometers away. It's just, it's just amazing. And you get to know all your animals, too. <laughs> you make friends with them. I had a, a friends who were wasps, <laughs> friends who were deer, all kind of stuff. Yeah, the deer this... just want, like interior British Columbia, the deer just want your piss, though. They're, they're, um, they're Did you just say the deer they just want, want, they want, they want to get piss. piss somehow? Yeah, because they're, they're often, you're so far inland, like let's say you're 800 kilometers inland, there's not a lot of salt blowing in from the sea. So the deer are kind of short of salt. And if they could only get a bit more salt, there's different kinds of herbs they could eat or different shrubberies that they can't eat because they don't have enough salt to handle it. So they're waiting. Like, they'll follow you around all day if you're friends with them. And they're waiting for you to piss on the ground somewhere. And then they'll go eat the dirt. Then they'll go run off to eat these particular shrubs that they can't otherwise eat. Right, Mike. Okay, this, 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 this conversation is kind of very interesting. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought we'd gone in this direction. That's fantastic. What are the circumstances that arise to you being able to have these sorts of experiences? Like, I mean, you must have been, how long were you, how long did you go out into this wilderness to be able to be so sort of connected? So I think you get it full, full after about 65 days, but it's, there's really quite an interesting transition at the, the whole um, 40 day period. 40 to 42 days. It varies between people. I know I know a lot of friends who used to go out in the bush quite a lot. It's around 40 days. You get quite a strong effect. The first thing you notice is 24 days. That's why, like, you know that, there was a movie, Castaway, with Tom Hanks in it. I think that was yeah. the name of it. And he filmed it on a particular island in Fiji. And I was yeah. wondering why he'd done such a bad job with his movie. And it turned out he, he hadn't, uh, he didn't have any input on it. So the guy he was acting didn't have any input. It was a particular writer. And he only went for... I think about 10 days or 11 days. So I found, I found a local when I went out on in a boat to get to this island where they filmed Castaway. And he told me, yeah, the writer had went and spent 10 days alone. It was something like 10. And I thought, okay, that's not nearly enough. Because you don't even get the first effect uh, that's a real effect until 24 days alone. So he probably had no idea what it's like to be uh, isolated in the bush. What are these effects that you're talking about? Given that I've spent a lot of time in Hong Kong, it's like, you know... <clears throat> Okay, well, 10 days, all you get is a bit of a feeling that something's happening, but you're not even sure what it is yet. And that's 10 full days without human contact or being around anything that reminds you of humans. Because you, you can't be like living in a cabin there either. 
because in a way a cabin is being encased in human thought because there's concepts that went into the building of you know the, the walls and the furniture and things like that so you're looking at human concepts all the time which is the same as having some contact with a human even quite faintly so you don't get the full effect if, you, if you're in a cabin you have to be right out there in the bush like I used to just sleep on the mud on the side of a mountain and uh, then you get the full effect because everything around you is fractal and natural like it has all these geometric structures that are normal in nature and this has a certain effect on your mind and you can really meld into it and so after 10 days, a bit of a wobbling, a bit of a loss of uh, sense of time. But um, 24 days, you start to lose a habit that you don't even know you have. And that's the habit of compressing your thoughts enough that you can put concepts to them and then put words to those concepts and speak them. But you, you start to lose that habit of conceptualizing your thought. And as a result, your thoughts become much more powerful. So much more even between the hemispheres, much more connected down to deeper areas of your brain. So you're, you have a really unified type of thinking. But if you had to communicate it, you couldn't. So, so for instance, once I remember I was trying to fish once, and I, I was uh, catching these little um, salmon that live in fresh water called kokanee. And I'd, fall, I'd slipped on these rocks. It was quite dangerous to get down to where I could get some of these fish. And I slipped on the rocks once, and I broke the reel of the fishing rod. But now I had a problem because I, I was beyond the point at which I could use concepts. So I had to, just in a dream state, fix the fishing reel. And it was weird because I could just see my fingers doing things. I was hardly aware of it. And there was no like internalization of me making a plan for anything. Just my fingers were doing things. And suddenly, they, sometimes they'd surprise me a little bit what they were doing. And at the end, the reel was fixed, even though it was a quite complicated problem. But I had no idea of what I'd done. So it's, it's all just subconscious or in some kind of dream state. And eventually, you go into something similar to the aboriginal dream time. So around, around 40 days, you get the, the point where your waking and sleeping are very similar. So the, your dreams while you're asleep, are um, they represent reality. But then in the, when you're supposed to be awake, you're actually daydreaming, and you're following these dreams. And by following your dreams, you get done what you have to get done. So just by following your dreams, you go up and you're looking and looking, and you find an area of bush maple that's just the right dryness, and you find some dead stems of them that are, you know, the, the proper length for firewood. And you might cut some of that and drag it back to the camp and then go pick berries for a while or try to see if maybe the um, hazelnuts are ready, you know, whatever you might be doing, but it's all just following dreams. And if you start to make a really severe mistake, then you have an intense vision that actually, I'm not a very visual piece, person, I'm actually almost aphasic. So I don't see any pictures in my mind when I think, and I don't hear any voices either. But when I would get a vision, suddenly it was surprising to me because I'd get a full video took over so instead of seeing what i'm seeing i'm seeing this video and it'd be something to try to give me a vision that i'm making a mistake and i had to correct my bad behavior like one example would be i'm walking through the bush and all of a sudden i had a vision of a lake where the, where it drained all the way down to mud and the mud had been dried in the sun such that it was hexagrams you know when mud sometimes dries like that it curls up a bit so the lake bottom was actually just hexagrams of dried mud and they looked like there should have been a wharf there but of course there was no water and there was a rowboat stuck in the mud. And then there was a skeletal hand of a human hand sticking out of the mud. And this was my vision. And then I had to figure it out. And I thought what it was telling me must be check the water supply. So I hiked, you know, um, kilometers up to where I normally was getting my water. And I saw that it had started to turn to mud. There was no water. So I was like, oh, no. And then I had to, like, frantically search for an alternate water supply. Because, you know, it was hot at that time. It had been like 30, 40 degrees Celsius for, I think, 40 days at that point. And it was even enough where this very nice water supply was dried down to mud. 
And so this vision warned me to find an alternate source before, you know, I just wake up one day and it's 40 degrees Celsius. I'm in the middle of nowhere and no water. Good grief. I recall reading a book. I, I actually forgot the name of this book. Um, but before I talk about that, there's one instance of, of like the, the sun, which would be the, the, the colloquial name Bushman down in South Africa or Namibia. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the, even though these people had no experience or contact with engines, like one time there was an instance where, where um, they happened to get onto a vehicle and there was problems with the engine. And, you know, they just popped the hood. They sort of listened to this thing, this engine. They said, okay, the problem is over there. And, you know, they had this fantastic ability to be able to sort of like isolate, diagnose problems and, 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 and solve them. Um, yeah, from our point of view, they were isolating and diagnosing. I think from their point of view, they were exercising intuition. So their, yeah. their intuition was probably honed, you know, extreme. I've noticed this in sometimes mechanics who've had decades on the job, they can get a good intuition as well. But if you're someone who's more intuitive, you might get that faster. But then you might have more difficulty in, like, for instance, my, my dad, when he was alive, was an engineer. And he was riding on a Greyhound bus once, and it broke down. And the, the uh, driver was saying, oh, well, we can't do anything. The bus has broke down. We just got to wait six hours for another one to arrive. And so my dad went in the back and said, give me this circuit diagram for your bus. And he just went in the back and he opened and looked at all the engines. And even though he didn't really have any dealings with Greyhound bus engines or their electrical system, he could just read the diagram. And then he managed to think, okay, it must be this. And then he actually fixed it. <laughs> and they were able to carry on from there. So, but that, that kind of skill the, um, the Bushman wouldn't have because right. they're going off intuition. So they wouldn't have the engineering skill of reading the diagram. But okay. often the Westerner is like more focused on the diagram. So we do better at the stuff of the diagram. And then only after decades would we get the intuition. And for them, they probably have the intuition quite easily because that's the way their brain works. But the mm -hmm. diagram would take for them, you know, decades of experience probably to, to get into that. Yeah. Sort of like the flip side of a way to be, to think and to be human. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how, how does one find the middle path? That, that would be much better. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the, back to this book about, okay, so there was a story about a, a Western woman who went to Australia and um, sort of um, joined these Aboriginal groups, but it's supposed to be this like original ab Aboriginal group who went on these long sort of like, walks across Australia um, yeah, walk and her description of sort of changes in the, in the, in the, in the, in the psychological changes are rather similar to yours in the sense that it's almost like just sort of like mind meld with everything around you. Um, and she was just describing some of the, the, the experiences she had. Like, for example, there was one time there was a massive swarm of uh, insects that sort of just sort of came through. And instead of just running away, as one would, you just, she sort of like opened up to it. And then like the insects went all over her and it, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was sort of concerning to her yeah. at that, at that time. I mean, so like, okay, so this, you, you went through a period of about, what was it? A couple of years, wasn't it? No, 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 no. It was, you said 65 days or something. Yeah. While I, you I, were out I, in the bush. I think I've done 86 completely alone, but then I had a, a friend came to visit me. So I had a, like a local um, anarchist friend who used to live nearby. He's one of those uh, Russian anarchists. Yeah. Yeah. So his, his, his family were actually terrorists. They were sons of freedom terrorists. They used to bomb the government. And he used to live up in the bush there too. And he came by to check on me. What and, country were you in at the time? This was in Canada. 
so I've, I've done bush time elsewhere as well, but I did my longest ones in Canada because I'm more familiar with Canada and it's quite dangerous up there. So, you know, if I'm catch some sort of illness and it, you know, it's, it's going to get quite serious, at least for the Canadian illnesses, I understand them a bit better. So for like places like Africa or South America, I, I do less. Yeah. Like for instance, there's a lot of giardia in the rivers in Canada now. It's spread everywhere. So I'm, I'm very alert for that. And, you know, th- things having to do with ticks and things like that. But imagine I was in, you know, South America and the problems were chiggers and kissing bugs. I wouldn't be as familiar. So for the really long stints, stints in, the, in the woods, I would do in Canada. And some of the shorter ones, just a month or something, I, I would do in like, you know, Africa, Amazon is fine. You mentioned one particular story when when you detected there was a mountain lion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one was a problem. I, I was up uh, looking for the water supply, actually. So it was in, um, when was that? It was like August of, I'm going to say 1994. And uh, I was up uh, looking for an alternate water supply far, far up, up on the mountain. And by the time I found it and secured it, and I, I ran a pipe so I could uh, take it down to where I was uh, living or, t- or take the water closer, I, I was working deep into the night. So I had to come back down the mountain in the middle of night just by feel. So it's a, real, it's a really, really steep mountain, like steeper than what a you know, double black diamond ski hill would be. Plus there were cliffs on it. And I had to come down in with a little sliver of moonlight and nothing more. So I began to walk down the mountain. And I went through like a little bit of a dip. And when I, when I finished coming out of the dip, you know, I could just feel from my feet that I'm on a bit more firm ground. I could hear an animal behind me. And I stopped to test what it was. And then and it took one footstep. And then on the second, it stopped as well. And I'm going, oh, no, a mountain lion. And I knew this one. I knew this mountain lion. He didn't normally come down to where I was living. But once he'd gone and uh, slashed my backpack. So I, I had this little green backpack at the time. It's um, a smaller version of the one I have now. And I would just use it for, like, day hikes. And I'd taken it off, and I'd sort of stuck my head in the river to drink a bit. And it ran down near to where I was and slashed the backpack. And its claws actually cut through, you know, the shoulder strap. It's like um, there's like not nylon, and then there's foam inside. And there's two rows of double stitching on a typical backpack. Well, its central claw opened up the whole thing so you could open the strap like a mouth. You could make it flap like a mouth. And the other claws did other damage on the side. But it didn't do more than that. But I, I knew it, you know, it had sharp claws. I knew it took down elk sometimes. But here it was following me in the middle of the dark. So now I realized that if it figured out that I was blind, it would attack. So I had to walk as if I could see. But I also knew there was cliffs. So it's the time when I've minded my feet the most, uh, <laughs> the most ever in my life. Because I, I could step right off a cliff I wasn't careful. So I'd really be paying attention to my toes, trying to um, uh, make sure I didn't step off a cliff. And also at the same time, trying to make sure I walked with a really wide stance that was very confident. Because I knew that it could see me as if it was daylight, because its eyes are working perfectly. So th- there I was walking along, with it coming along behind me, and every so often to continue the ruse that I wasn't blind, I would listen for when it snapped a twig or made some kind of mistake in stalking me. And when it did, I'd look exactly no. where the source. Yeah, I'd whip my neck back and look exactly where it was with the sound. So we would think, okay, it can, this animal can see. <laughs> and uh, then finally, I got down to my camp, and uh, I didn't have a gun with me. I'd actually sent it down with a girlfriend who'd come to visit, like, I think a couple months before that, because I'd had a really good relationship with the bears that year. So I felt I didn't want it up there rusting away. So I didn't even I'm have not sure gun. what you mean, you had a really good relationship with the bears. You mean they didn't attack? Is that what you mean by yeah, that? Yeah, because with bears, like, you know, with, with bears, they say you should back away from the bear when you see one. But if you're living in the bush, you can't back away from the bear, because then you're lying to the bear. So what you have to do is stand your ground. 
because okay let, let's say you see a bear and you follow like the parks canada advice you back away from the bear well then you're going to have a problem because the bear came up to you it's it sort of made some growling noise it started to approach you you backed away that's you saying to it oh sorry that i'm in your territory you know it won't happen again that's what your message is so uh, you can't give that message if it's not true because i was going to be there for months like like all summer essentially you know deep in almost in winter i, I was going to be there so instead, what you have to do is throw out your arms and you go, and you chase the bear and uh, be really aggressive. And then you'll see usually the day or two days after you do that, it's trying to clarify whose territory is what. So it'll come up and find a tree. Like in this case, it found a ponderosa pine, which is a big yellow, um, sorry, orange barked pine, usually quite uh, big in diameter, maybe a meter thick. And it went and made claw marks onto this and pissed on the tree. So then I went with a hatchet and went a taller knit and made my own marks. And then I pissed on the tree too. So I'm like, okay, we're establishing where the boundary is, right? You know, good fences make good neighbors. Yeah, so, so I had such a good relationship with the bear uh, that year that I didn't feel I needed a gun. But I didn't know I was going to have trouble with this mountain lion. So yeah, so it followed me down. I was able to find my camp. So even though I, I couldn't see anything, I didn't fall off a cliff. But I missed my camp on the way down because it was several kilometer walk down. And But luckily, I passed through this clearing where... I could see like there was a strange tree against the starlight and the tree came up a little bit. And there's a, there's a branch that came out and then the branch sort of came up and did a strange J shape and then wiggled again. And I, I thought, Oh, I recognize that because I'd been there er, like months earlier. I've been sitting with a, a girlfriend there and we'd taken some mushrooms and we were like hanging out, watching the, watching bats flitter around against the starlight. And I was like, Oh, I remember that tree. <laughs> so I was able to find the camp. And then I thought, okay, now this mountain lion is going to take off because it can see that I'm in the camp. But no, it was there harassing me. And the only thing I could find to defend myself was a piece of hawthorn wood that I cut earlier. And I was using it to hold up a piece of plastic that I'd put above me if it was raining. And so I just had this staff made of hawthorn. And the, uh, the mountain lion would flatten its ears and it would come at me. And it wasn't making that noise that they sometimes make in the movies. I mean, they can make that noise. But it wasn't making that noise. It was just coming right at me with its ears flat. So I would growl at it and swing the staff, but then it would uh, sort of back away, but I could see it was trying to get inside of my swing. So I'd have to check the swing and then be ready to counter. And I was doing that for a while. So then I had, so I had that same girlfriend was going to come up in another month to see how I was. And usually we, we'd, um, you know, hang out for a day or something. So I thought, okay, it could be dangerous because if this, if this mountain lion kills me, then it would be dangerous for her to come up looking for me. So I had to nail a little, uh, I wrote on a piece of paper and uh, nailed it onto the tree in a place where if you can't find me, I've been beaten by a mountain lion. Just, uh, you know, go back to town. <laughs> so it's the only time I've had to write a note like that. <laughs> but the, the thing is, this mountain lion was hassling me a little bit, and I managed to drive it off. And finally, I could tell it was nearby, but I wasn't seeing it very often. I'd catch a glimpse of it maybe once or twice a day. So for the next two or three days, it was around. But I, so I opened up my emergency food, and I had these tins of tuna, and I started eating only tuna. And I thought, well, maybe if we can see that I'm someone that eats only meat, it'll realize that I'm also a carnivore not to mess with me. And sure enough, it went away after three days. And I didn't see it again, so it worked out. But yeah, it was definitely a hostile mountain lion. Grief. Good God. Good God. Yeah, and I've had some trouble with bears, but never as bad as that. I mean, a, a bear killed a woman behind my brother's house, but that, that was kind of rare. Like, normally they don't do anything like that. What about elk? I hear elk are pretty, I mean, not, not elk, sorry, moose. Moose, oh, they're okay, the well, big ones. Yeah, moose, I've never had trouble with moose. You know, I've had one trying to stare me down, but eventually it just moved on. And But with elk, 
there's one of them. Like I, I had a friend. He's dead now. Actually, he took too much cocaine and crashed his Harley. <laughs> he was drinking too, though. But um, but before that, he's actually he's a, he had a strange story. I won't have time to tell you his story. But he used to work for the Hell's Angels and things like that. He's quite an interesting fellow. But he had a, a dog that was running around this cabin he had in the woods. And there's one time, like I was up upstairs at his cabin, and we had some sort of VCR movie running. And his dog came in, and it just kind of lay beside me, and I started petting it. And then I said, oh, no, like his name was Leo. And I said, Leo, there's a hole in your dog. And he goes, what, really? And we looked at it, and there was like a hole right through the dog. And he said, damn. So he took the thing and threw it in the back of his truck and drove out to the vet. And the vet was saying, oh, I've never seen a dog survive this. And then he said, does your dog chase elk? And Leo was like, yeah, I guess he does. And then he said, well, it's been, it's been speared by one of the tines right through its body, but it missed every single organ on the way through. So he just sewed it up on both sides, and then the dog's fine. Okay, so that can happen to you too if you if you go after these elk. Yeah, these bull elk. They look almost like, or they make a noise, just like those um, dark riders on. Um, it's like a whistle. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, they make like that a- weird whistling kind of bugling noise. It's like I think they use part of that for um, for the dark riders on Lord of the Rings. When I was in the theater watching that, like uh, I was with all people from the countryside. It's like, where's the elk? Where's that elk? Yeah, when the elk sound came, like everyone just started laughing because, like, why does this horse sound like an elk? <laughs> or does that rider sound like an elk? Yeah. Did you manage to get any um, uh, nature time in in South America? A little bit, yeah, but it wasn't. I don't think it was as good for nature time there. I mean, you can catch piranhas; you can live off that. But um, there's a lot of mosquitoes, so I don't think it'd be quite as fun. It'd be almost like going into the bush in, in like Ontario or someplace like that, where there's tons and tons of mosquitoes everywhere. And you know, some of my friends spent a long time in the jungle, but they would usually end up with leishmaniasis or leishmaniasis. I'm not sure exactly. What what that? It's some sort of weird uh, skin disease. I think it's spread by some fly or a sandfly or something. I, I could be wrong on that, but I had one buddy got that quite seriously. He used to go out and live with the tribes there, and he got. He got an example of that that was quite serious, and it took him several years to get that sorted out. And then I had some other – one friend was like a filmmaker who was hanging out in the Amazon trying to interview people who were floating down the Amazon River. And he ended up with um, dengue that was pretty bad. Oof. So, yeah, so you get, you get a lot of illnesses there. Amazon's yeah. not too healthy <laughs> unless, you're, unless you're careful. <laughs> Yeah, well, so it makes you wonder how, how makes you wonder how the locals uh, are able to survive in there. I suppose all that knowledge. Well, well they know of, what they're doing, right? So yeah. you know, that's why if I was going to spend you know half a year in the bush, I would do it in Canada because you know I would know to check my body for ticks and stuff because you can get Lyme disease. Like I, I kind of know these things, and I know which mm. kind of animals are going to kill you and which one will leave you alone. So yeah. Um, yeah, and how to find food and stuff. Whereas in the Amazon, I think I would want some sort of a quite a skilled guide to to attempt that. I mean, even in Africa, when I go out in the bush, I would hire a guide because, you know, I, I don't have time to learn all the particularities of, um, you know, the African bush. Mm. And it's much better just have the guide to tell me. Like when we'd be harassed by elephants, you know, he would tell me that if they're if they're charging now, like go and hide in the roots of that tree. And there'd be a tree that had like almost like a cage of roots around it. And he was saying you can just go around the inside in the roots and its tusks can't get to you, but it'll be stabbing through. But you can keep changing position. <laughs> so I was the Looney Tunes cartoon where I'd be doing that, and then uh, one one elephant tried to chase us into the into the ocean. This was in Gabon. That was pretty oh. fun. Yeah, I mean, growing up in South Africa, <laughs> uh, we had we we used to go to the bush quite a lot, you know, for our sort of yearly holidays. And there were three young bull elephants, um, 
and you know they're they're cocky they're full of shit you know they've got they've yeah. got their oats that they want to eat so they come they come right up to the sort of uh, these uh, chalets which are deep in the bush um you know, knocking over rubbish bins and whatnot and my younger brother and i you know, all of 12 years old or a little bit old we used to go out there you know face down these three elephants look at looking at them and it's round about then that you realize that you've made a big mistake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then they start flapping their ears, you know. You know you, I'm sure you yeah. know what African elephants. And you're oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is not good. Okay. Yeah. And then they lift their trunk sniffing a little bit. And then they yes, yes, yes. And their eyes look more, a bit more red and beady. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they get really stroppy round about that point. And, and you don't want to be near them. And, yeah, you get away from them. Elephants, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not so worried about, for me, Africa is a little bit more, I'm okay with it. Yeah. But that's also saying, like, you know, out in the bush where you know that the lions are already in an enclosure. Um, <clears throat> it's quite something else when they're not. <laughs> you know, imagine, yeah, imagine being out on the Serengeti plain or something like that. And oh, yeah. Well, you know, it doesn't always end well with the elephants, though. Like, like for instance, I have one friend who's, who used to be a, Touareg um, rebel commander. So he was, he was um, there's like a rebellion in, in um, northern Nigeria where the right. Touareg rebels were seizing cocaine that was being shipped out to Europe. And they would like um, sort of blackmail the guys who were sending. Like what they would do is uh, there'd be these trucks carrying cocaine going to Europe and they'd have to stop at oases on the way up to get water. So the Touaregs would send boys out to watch these different water sources with cell phones. And if they saw like a, a mysterious truck coming through with armed men in it, they would call in and the Touaregs would surround them with automatic weapons. And they would seize these guys and they take, they find the truck was invariably full of like bales, you know, uh, big bags of cocaine. But it was 100% pure stuff. But they didn't know how to, you know, make money from selling cocaine. So they would just uh, seize control of it, but let these guys go and say, tell your boss if he wants his cocaine, he better drop a bag with, I think it was tens of millions. I forget exactly how much, but it was like, I think they were getting upward of 40 to even 60 million sometimes off these, uh, you know, off several trucks that they had captured. And they'd want this sort of ransom to turn over the cocaine again so it continue north. And they were using this to go into near to Libya. And they were buying off, you know, um, you know, weapons bazaars they'd have out in the desert. There was probably people associated with Muammar Gaddafi selling. And they'd use this to fight against the Niger government. Because from their point of view, it was like um, Hausa tribes, which they were not aligned with. They had sort of a tribal conflict there. But anyway, before he was a rebel commander for the Touaregs, he used to work in a park in Namibia. And his job was to take people out to see elephants. And one time he had a crew of tourists, and he brought them out near to where you could see the elephants. But he said, we have to sleep here. But in the morning, don't you worry, I'll take you down to a safe place, and you can get photos of, of their herd of wild elephants. Now, whatever you do, don't attempt to go down and view them now. It's nighttime, and it took us a long time to get here. And it's, it's night, and they're very, sk- they're very skittish and sometimes a bit angry. And they won't see who you are, and they may well attack. So just stay in your tents. But then in the morning when he got up, he noticed one of the tents was uh, open. And the woman who was supposed to be in it wasn't there, and she didn't come out for breakfast. So he told the rest of the tourists, okay, you keep eating breakfast. I'm going to just go check something. And he went down the escarpment, and he saw, like, pieces of this German woman everywhere and her camera. So clearly she had tiptoed out of the tent and thought, I'm going to get some elephant photos. It's going to be great. But it turned out the elephants... They would sniff. They, they would think there's something in the bush. Maybe it's a lion, and simply charged. Those stories don't surprise me. It's it's like growing up in Africa that those stories do not surprise me. 
you hear of stories of you know you know the, the typical one is the japanese photographer getting out of a vehicle inside a lion enclosure oh the lion king yeah let's go cuddle some lions and then bam bam yeah. and they're really smart about it they're really smart about it you can see you can see um these guys these 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 lionesses sort of kick into um uh, uh, ambush mode or something I was doing I was doing something a little bit foolish when I drove my vehicle into a, a lion enclosure. I actually was making a little bit of an experiment, seeing how they would react should I open the door. Okay. And I did open the door. I opened the door a little bit, but watching like all of these lionesses, it was yeah. very interesting. A couple of lionesses up front, they were just sort of like, you know, everybody looks. You know, it's like, okay, we opened the can of tin uh, sardines, right? The, the, the sardines are open. Um, these two up front, they start looking like, and then I notice in the rear view mirror, the one lioness, she goes straight down low, bam, right behind the vehicle. Eyes, it's just like, it's just like this massive lock on to see, oh, there's a crack in the door. Yeah. And it was at that point. <laughs> It was at that point I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to entertain this anymore because, yeah. you know, she could just like get a claw in there and I just closed the door after that. But when I saw that, I was like, yeah, Japanese tourists, they don't have a chance. Just don't have a chance when it comes to, when it comes to, you know. Yeah. Well, the thing is you've got to respect animals for what they are. I mean, they're not necessarily like you've got to be able to appreciate the animals but not think that they're anything like what you see on tv or on the cartoons i mean even example would be like one of my buddies does negotiations with um tribes along the coast of british columbia so these would be ones like the Haida or the tlingit or ones like that it used to be you know whale hunting tribes or salmon fishing tribes along there and they know a lot about sea otters and sea otters have a very good reputation which they should they're kind of cute right they're quite big as well but um he knows just from being up in these reserves how sea otters actually behave. And they're quite clever sometimes. They try to attract over dogs. And then they try to be really playful and they'll get the dog to come into the uh, ocean. And when they get it there, they'll drown it. And then they're, they're also quite randy. So they tend to like rape the corpse. <laughs> they're seeing if they can attract another, another dog. <laughs> so it's not at all what you see on a, a Disney you know, version of sea otters, but that's how they behave. They're into necrophilia. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Big time. yeah. <laughs> Good God. Have you, have you done much of the tundra? Um, I haven't done too much. I mean, I was up with the uh, reindeer herders in the Russian Arctic. And I've been in Greenland a little bit, but I didn't get far. It was too expensive for me to do much in Greenland. So, and, and also a little bit annoying. Like I was trying to get information on how to do things and everyone was very laid back. And, um, you know, they'd be telling me, oh, you can you can sign up for this helicopter tour. We're going to go check out some old Viking ruins and then see a fjord. Not oh, okay, you know, sign me up for that. And then I'd come back every day for a week checking on it. And I said, are we ready to go with the helicopter? They just say, no, not today, not today, not today. And finally, I asked them, like, how long does it usually take before you're ready to go on this helicopter tour? And he goes, well, we need eight people to sign up. I said, well, how many you got? And it was just you. <laughs> and I said, well, what uh, you paid? Yeah, and then I said, well, well, I'm only here for another week in Greenland, so you know, is, what's the likelihood that I'm... Well, I hadn't paid yet. I was going to pay as soon as I went. And, he said, and then I said, well, I'm only here another week. And he goes, well, you know what? I've actually never seen there be eight people, so the helicopter's never left. <laughs> said, this helicopter actually only leaves when a cruise ship comes in. I go, okay, <laughs> thanks for that. Oh, Jesus. 
Oh, Jesus. Okay, so not much experience out there in the tundra. and, and uh, But I did hang out with the Yakuti reindeer herders, so I, I was learning to drive a reindeer sled. And this is quite far up in the... It wasn't quite tundra, but, you know, they were like the drunken forest. We have the large trees have been disturbed a bit by permafrost, so they kind of almost staggering to the side, so they call it a, a, a drunken yeah, <laughs> a drunken forest. And that was kind of fun to learn how to ride a reindeer sleigh while drunk, because, of course, the Yakuti insisted on constant vodka drinking in the winter. Is it true that is it true that this 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 group of people have been um, you know domesticating uh, elk or reindeer for so long that they've forgotten how to do it now? Well, definitely, they, it must have started a long time ago because they're they're very domesticated now. Like compared to the the caribou, which are actually reindeer in Canada, they're not domesticated at all. But the reindeer in Europe, they're almost like halfway to being a horse. It just shows you how long the Sami have been at it, and the yeah right. yeah to some to some extent too. Right, so I did right. notice that they got it wrong. And you know that uh, movie Frozen 2? I don't know if you have nieces or nephews or whatever, but they like to watch this Frozen movie. You have like Frozen 2? Well, they I haven't seen got... Frozen 2, but I know oh, about Frozen Okay, so it's meant to be Norwegians, essentially. They didn't come out and say it, but it's meant to be Norwegians. And they had this um, this trope going where the Norwegians had come in and stolen the land. And the Sami people, who are the reindeer herders, were like the real inhabitants of the land. And they sort of had to come to an accommodation with them and realize that it wasn't good that the land was stolen. And I was watching it saying, hmm, no, they got it wrong. Because I'm not sure if you follow genetic studies or if you're interested in the movement of tribes and peoples. It's actually the Norwegians are the native people for Norway. And the Sami are invaders. So they came okay. in around the time when the, Ro- when the Romans, you know, around that time, they were moving across the north. And a similar with the Inuit in the Canadian North as well. So during the same time between when, you know, Columbus and the Spanish, they come over and started invading Mexico. Well, at the same time, the Inuit started to expand across northern Canada. So over that same 500-year period, they destroyed the Dorset people. And I thought they completely destroyed them, but actually someone found a village in Quebec where there's still genetically Dorset people there. They were an unusual people because they all, the whole Dorset civilization, whatever you want to call it, a tribe, which was spread across thousands of kilometers. They were all the kids of one woman. So right. so it must have been like a really long time ago, there was one woman with a bunch of dudes, and they just started expanding across the Arctic, and eventually they ended up filling up with their Dorset people. But then the Inuit came, Inuit came in over 500 years, eliminated them all, and eventually got almost all the way to Newfoundland. And they got rid of the Vikings too, so they're probably the ones who kicked the Vikings out of, out of Greenland. It's kind of interesting. I, I like the movement of tribes, and I like to visit various tribes and hear about their history and stuff. It's quite interesting. They don't, they don't seem so ferocious, mind you, living in such harsh conditions, I suppose. Oh, well, well, the Inuit were deadly enemies with, like, the dog rib and Dene and people like that. They would kill each other on site, complete genocide. Like, this is recorded, like, if, uh, if let, let's say, uh, Dene saw um, Inuit, they'd immediately attack, and they would, like, bust open the igloos and even try to kill the babies. And the, the Inuit, likewise. They didn't get along at all, but they were they were adjacent tribes with different lifestyles. So I guess they really didn't have much in common and had no use for each other. Oh, yeah, consuming. Often like that with the tribal people. I mean, some of my friends are Cree, but you know, I've, I've got half Scottish ancestry, and actually the Cree and the Scots are kind of similar. So Scots are a colonized people who kind of lost their language. They were colonized by the, you know, we could even say the upper class English managed to colonize them. And, they, and then they became like, okay, can't beat them, join them. They sort of joined the empire. And they'd be like a military arm of the empire doing trading, working on steam engines, this kind of thing. Well, they were out in Canada as well in the bush working for the Hudson's Bay Company. But there's another group, the Cree, which is like a really large tribe in the boreal forest. And they thought the same thing. So, that, so during the like 
during the time when um, top hats were quite popular. They needed to catch beavers to make the felt to make the hats. So the Cree and the Scots were the ones who were combining to make a business force to be able to go get these beavers, manage to get them back and ship them back to England to turn into these top hats. So there were groups of like 300 Cree that were armed with rifles provided by the English. And they'd be roaming around, you know, uh, doing fur trading all across, you know, half of the North American continent. So in a way, it's very similar lifestyle to the Scottish. And uh, now most of them speak English. I mean, there's a little bit of Cree spoken, but not much. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Did you did you ever get over to the East that much? I remember having a discussion with you, like in Hong Kong, you've been there just a few times, but I mean... Yeah, maybe three or four times tops to Hong Kong. Yeah, you, that was during the time when you used um, you used the the hub and spoke uh, travel tactic. But yeah. then uh, sh- shortly, uh, well, I'm not I'm not sure how after soon afterwards you you went into freestyle. Can you maybe you can tell us a bit, little bit about what freestyle travel is versus other forms of travel? Well, freestyle is the type that I started because hub and spoke wasn't working. So <laughs> I used to like find a place where I could use as kind of like a home base, and then I would do countries near to it. But after a while, I found out that I'd sort of peppered the world so much with these little um, hubs where I'd sort of gone out and visited everything around it, that it was sort of like a strange mosaic of what was left. And I just had to go freestyle, which was just completely, I try to plan as much as possible, but within reason, and usually be a few days of planning for each country. And I just see where it, would, where it would take me, and I'd just roam around. It didn't make any sense at all. I just roamed from country to country. But, uh, you know, it felt really great. Because you, you don't have to plan as much. Like you sort of like leave planning behind. And you just try to be, you know, keep your wits about you. And uh, just move about from country to country with no attempting to make a base or anything like that. Just completely free. And it works only if you have no possessions and you've like, you don't have to, uh, you've made it so you don't have to work. You know, things like this. You have to plan all of this before you can do it. But I think there's also one other critical piece of information to this freestyling, which is, um, you know, only aligning yourself with with good people and their networks. Oh yeah, that was a, that was a skill that you, for sure you need. You need to be able to be a good judge of character. And eventually, I would get better and better at that. So I would just use just experience. You can imagine over thirty years of traveling. Eventually, you get to be a really good judge of character. You almost you can tell from the face normally. And eventually, you have a bit of an instinct. So I guess it's one of these things where you're honing an instinct as well. And after after a while, you get an instinct of who's good and who's not. And you know. And, of course, travelers talk amongst themselves as well. So if you hear someone's bad experience, like they were mugged, for instance, by someone they thought they'd befriended, if you ask them, you know, did you get any sort of bad feeling about this? They would always say, you know, oh, at one point, yeah, I thought something was up or something didn't quite feel right. So, you know, you're, you're unconscious. You're just trying to talk to your conscious and it's trying to say, Here's not, this person is not someone you should trust. Yeah. And if you pay attention to it and hone your instinct... You can you can do really well. You can just go from town to town through areas where normally a Westerner couldn't travel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And markets are a good place to hone that instinct as well because the people in the market, quite often they're trying to rip you off, and that's their job. But you're looking for tells. It's almost like if you're a poker player. I mean, I'm not a poker player at all, but I almost imagine it's something similar where you're looking for little tells on the face and is this guy trying to rip me off? What's going on here? And you can like look at it in a more humorous manner and then try to try to see what you can learn for it, from it. What sort of experiences, some of the most, inti- what are the, some of the most intimidating or um, situations where expectations were not met in the sense that like you arrived in this, into a country or a situation and you thought, right, I just, 
I don't have what it takes to be able to handle this. How am I going to do this? Um, during your, did you have any of these sort of experiences during your travels? Do you, do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, I had, I had lots of those. Sometimes, like for instance, the first one I ever had with that was El Salvador. And I was traveling with a girlfriend at the time, and uh, she was getting pretty worried as we got closer to El Salvador. And I said, well, you know, if you don't feel comfortable, we'll leave the country. We'll give it a try, but if you don't like it, we'll leave. And what we found was going on in El Salvador. This was around the time when the Atlat uh, Death Brigade was operating. And they used to, like, chop up babies, all kind of stuff. They are really nasty. I think they were fighting against the communists. They were funded by the Americans. But the other side was just as nasty. And I, I think because of this and the ongoing civil war, that the people there would say things like, kind of disconcerting things, like, say, in El Salvador, for $300, you can get someone killed. Like, they would just add these little non sequiturs into conversation. So you can see that they're, they're very used to, you know, and also their, their agriculture was really like, like you look at hills and you see the, the hills completely dry. It's almost, it's eroded, almost all the soil's gone, but maybe there's a little crack on the top with a bit of soil in it. And you can see that someone took the time to walk all the way up there just to plant like the 20 corn plants that can fit there. So you can see they're really at starvation level. It was really, really bad. But I, I didn't see poverty that bad into, except um, rural Afghanistan or um, parts of North Korea. Yeah, it was like almost starvation level. And the problem we found there was when we go out and around the town, there'd be gangs of people that would just be following us around. And they'd be like, you could see them whispering to each other and more of them were gathering. And you can see they look very furtive and almost like they're planning something. So, then so we you've got a couple of mountain lions behind you. Yeah, it's almost like that. Almost like we're being chased, like they're, they're gathering to pounce on us. But then we'd go in somewhere and hide. And after a while, they disperse. But then when we came out again, we'd see like the same faces, you know, gathering again. So you can see there were... There were gangs that were probably active determining who'd arrived in town and if they were a good target and then trying to assemble and uh, and attack and after a while the girl i was with said i don't feel comfortable here and i said okay we'll leave so we didn't end up seeing much in el salvador just a few mine ruins there wasn't much to see actually it was extremely poor at that time i think that was early 90s i suppose it's a little, a little bit more different when it's just yourself versus having somebody with you yeah i would uh, never take a girlfriend for the more dangerous ones that's why i did a I did part of Afghanistan alone. So I, I was with a girlfriend for the Kabul part and then for going into the central mountains hitchhiking. You know, I, I did that alone. And of course for Iraq, you know, I did that as well alone because that was during Operation Iron Grip. So there was battling going on for control of the countryside. And I had to like pretend to be an Iraqi and slip through there. I can kind of pass for an Iraqi. <laughs> I, maybe not so much now. I have like, I haven't had my haircut in months now. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it was. I think it was in your book. The, the where where it was in Iraq, if I recall, where you were in a, in, a, in a bar or some sort of tavern or something, and somebody walked in. Was it a military guy who walked in or something like that? I'm sure it was oh, yours. Well, in well in Mosul, there was. Um, I got raided by the Americans. Yeah, that was pretty funny. So I, so I was there just finishing off some olives that were on my plate, and suddenly the power is cut, and there was like ooh, and there, there was like a reception for a wedding there, and they were finishing off their meal as well. And then a uh, squad of Americans came in and they were, you could see that they were just trying to search and they found one weapon. Uh, um, and then. Okay, just wait. Uh, there was a bit of a pause. They said they found one weapon and then. And then they started to interrogate everyone who was there and they were harassing people. And you could see when they, when the leader of the squad left the room, the soldiers would be more aggressive, so they'd be shoving their guns into people's guts and saying, shut up or we'll shoot you. But then you see when the leader came back in, all of a sudden everything's polite and by the book again. 
but you know, there's just like hillbilly boys here in the army, given a given a rifle, and you know, they've probably never been outside of their hometown, and all of a sudden they're in Iraq, told to uh, to harass people. So it's kind of difficult. I think they they would have been hundred and first airborne or tenth mountain division at that time. I think. But anyway, eventually they discovered I was a foreigner, and they surrounded me and started interrogating <laughs> quite angrily. <laughs> but I was having some fun with them. They were saying, what are you doing in Iraq? Yelling. And, and uh, I would say, I'm on vacation. What, are you guys working? <laughs> and like, that cracked them up. And then a few other things like that. And they say, where's your weapons to defend yourself? And I say, I don't have any weapons. They say, you're just walking around in, in Iraq without weapons? And they say, yeah, yeah, I came up. I saw you guys' a secret military base that you have near old Babylon. They go, what? You've seen our base in Babylon? <laughs> so uh, it was quite fun. But then uh, then after the, it's odd, they just asked to see two pieces of ID instead of one. So I just showed them my, you know, passport and driver's license. And they were like, okay, you should get out of here if you want to live, like that kind of thing. And I said, I'm making my way north anyway, so I'll be gone. You mentioned North Korea. You've also done North Korea. Yeah, North Korea is just a package tour, though. So there's this guy who's quite friendly with the dictator. And he's got in, in uh, Beijing, there's like one in the bar district. There's one building where you just go in there and it's choreo tour or something like that. I think you, you have to slip them like a grand or two. And then you sort of arrange and you're on a tour. And just someone who's associated with the military is going to watch you. In, in my case, it was a, a girl named Yu. So because so, she's a girl, she's Miss Yu. <laughs> Miss Yu was her name. But, uh, but anyway, she, her brother was involved in the atomic warfare program for the North Koreans. So she was considered to be so um, close to the regime that they could trust her. So she was, you know, dealing with all the foreigners. And these foreigners, like, almost all of them were complete pussies. Like, they wouldn't say anything about, their, about the regime or anything critical or even give a hint of anything critical. You could see they were like little sheep. It was quite amusing. Like, even, like, we're, we're getting drunk and Miss Yu would say to everyone there, like, um, you know, our, our government says that the Korean War is the most important war in the world. Like, what do you guys think about it? And I said, well, in, in Canada, we didn't even study that in school. Like, that's considered kind of a minor war, you know, with all due respect. And, uh, but then all the other tourists are with me said, oh, no, it's a very major war. We studied it in school. And then she seemed sort of mollified by that. And then after she went away, I said to them, really, you studied the Korean War in school? Like, in Canada, it's considered really minor. We said, oh, no, we don't study it at all. But we just thought, like, we didn't want you to upset her by saying that you didn't study it in Canada. <laughs> so wow. they were even afraid to ask. They were even afraid to speak the truth when the guide, you know, was drunk with us and asking. So you can see yeah. they're, not, they're not really willing to stand up for their own beliefs at all. I mean, I can, maybe they're scared of being thrown in prison. I'm not sure what it is. But, you know, yeah. anyway, that's, that's uh, <laughs> it, the most terrific. It looks looks like North Korea seems to be opening up a bit. I mean, they've, they've done a lot of developments along the main strip of, I don't know, one of these cities. But I don't know. I'm not so sure about Korea. It's, it's, yeah. too, it's too centralized. It's too, you know, it's a dictatorship over there. So, wh- well, I met wh- a Scotsman wh- once who made 50 grand from North Korea. Doing so what? He's a Scottish businessman. So I met him in the Faroe Islands. Yeah, the Faroe Islands. And um, he was saying, yeah, I went to North Korea and I made $50,000. And I go, oh, wow, okay, I didn't even know you were allowed to do business there. He goes, no, no, it wasn't so much business. It was kind of a strange sort of business. He said, um, someone just pulled me into a room and said, you put on your tourist application form that you're a businessman. And he said, yeah, I make uh, heated towel racks for hotels. And I go, oh, very interesting. Well, we have a business proposition for you. How about we give you this $100,000 slap? And it's like, whoa. <laughs> they say, how about you take this back with you to Scotland and uh, you, can, uh, you can keep 50000 
but put 50,000 in this Swiss bank account. And he was like, okay, yeah, 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 sounds good. And then he, then he was like, you know, with me saying, yeah, I made, you know, made all this money. And I said, did you give them the, the 50 or did you take the whole 100? He was, no, I gave them the 50. I put it in the Swiss bank account. And he said, I can't understand why they gave me the money, though. And I said, well, I have some guesses. So uh, that money was either from missile, like missile sales or it was from like selling methamphetamine <laughs> or it was, uh, or here's another thing. It could have been counterfeit money, right? Like, so and you go, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, because they, yep. they had really good counterfeit presses. They might have given them like 100 grand of, of fake money. That was that stuff that was so good that the Americans had to change the way they made money to, to get away from it. So that, that's yeah. probably the, I would say they probably gave him 100 grand of counterfeit. Uh-huh. That's just my estimate, because I never actually saw the money. I just saw him bragging about it. Wow, interesting. How do you view the current situation that's going on now, especially in your part of the world, um, south of the right border? Now, well, this whole COVID thing, I'm kind of, um, I tend to look at a more of a global scale. So for me, I think the whole lockdown was unwarranted because I'm worried about the damage to third world countries where people are, you know, on the edge of starvation anyway, or they're doing very poorly economically. And I've noticed as I travel that whenever there's a downturn or a depression or a great recession or whatever it might be, like I notice people actually dying. So and I know the numbers for this, too. I have a lot of friends who work for the UN or they do geopolitical analysis. So I'm aware that if we have an extremely sharp downturn, that the deaths are going to be in the millions in some of these poor countries. And for me, I kind of, I mean, I'm not trying to say that everyone should be this way, but I, I value their lives quite highly. So, you know, if someone says, should Canada lock down in a very strict sense such that it maximally contracts the business? I would say no, because we owe it to the world to keep the economy running a bit more. Because when we do lock down, we suck in billions of dollars and two thirds of it comes from the third world. So it's money that probably should have gone toward developing Africa or South America or Southern Asia. And instead, it gets drawn into the first world to pay for our staycations in these homes here, where it's actually quite luxurious to the way that people live in the third world. But I, I'm not trying to, to push this opinion on everyone. I mean, I know a lot of people are like America first or Canada first or whatever it might be, right? They're, they care about their own citizens really a lot more than they would care about how people did elsewhere. But I just think with this, this COVID, it seems to me that it's not any worse than, let's say, the 1957 flu or the 1968 flu. Yeah, so yeah. 1918 was even worse. So oh, my yeah. mom caught both of those. She was very sick with the 57 and the 68. And if you, yeah. if you go back and you sort of demographically adjust for the smaller population back then and the lesser number of old people, the 57 and the 68 were just as deadly as this one. And people just had voluntary quarantine at that time, and it meant the economy you know, wasn't contracting as much. So yeah. I'm, I'm concerned with the contraction of the economy and the millions of deaths it'll cause in the third world. But also, yeah. I realize that's just my opinion. So that's how I would vote if it were up to me. But uh, yeah, you know, yeah the, 19, the 1918, uh, 1918 um, uh, pandemic that killed my great grandparents, turning my great my my grandmother into an orphan. So that had a s- severe effect on my mother's uh, later I, uh, that generation, mm-hmm. that side of things. But I I completely agree with you on on the lockdown thing because I mean here in Hong Kong. We've got a lot of experience when it when it comes to, you know, containing uh, uh, contagion from from China. You know, when 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 China sneezes, you know, the, the, the yeah. countries around it just go, you know, brace. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 I came into Hong Kong in two thousand and seven, and it was just after the uh, the, uh, the the first SARS, and I recall walking around. And the whole of Hong Kong was so into, like, you know, 
pandemic, you know, increasing, uh, uh, sorry, decreasing the R naught. Yeah. Where I would, I would go, you know, pressing elevator buttons and whatnot, and people would be like, oh, you know, I just saw you rub your face after you, after you touched that elevator button. I thought, Jesus Christ, these Hong Kongers are real pussies, man. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, only until now I start to realize it's like, like when, 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 a, when some sort of, when, when there's an epidemic that's happening in China, Hong Kong just goes straight into full on mode. Like, as I said earlier on, even though we know that the environment around us has got um, uh, very little uh, SARS-2, everybody's mm. wearing masks. Everybody's wearing masks. Um, and yeah. interestingly enough, we, we just had a new um, outbreak um, in one of these logistic companies. We think it came in through the cold chain uh, oh, wow. from the UK. So somebody got infected because of just, you know, dealing with the uh, stuff in the cold chain. And it kind of makes sense. The virus is, uh, stays active in colder environments. So, you know, we've locked off all these things and we've always discovering new ways for this virus to sort of come in. Um, yeah. And we have the packing plants and the, especially the nursing homes. So eight, more than 80% of the deaths are those extremely old people who are locked away in nursing homes. So they're on yes. the last year or two of their life and they're kind of, they're almost in quarantine all the time. It's just a whole bunch of old people together. And they're just finding out now that, that actually is super spreaders who spread most of it. So the majority of people who catch this illness, they just simply get over it. They don't spread it to anyone. But then there's certain people, maybe 20% of them, who do all the spreading. And the spreading takes place indoors. So it's a little bit of a mistake, this whole lockdown indoors thing. They should have had the opposite of a quarantine. They say, get outside in the parks as much as you can, like fresh air and sunlight. <laughs> get out of these uh, enclosed spaces. That's where it's safest, right? An anti-quarantine. Yeah, they found in the 1918 um, epidemic uh, pandemic situation, like those those people, because it was it was it, it completely overflooded the uh, overflowed the hospitals, and you know they had mm -hmm. to have these outdoor tents. Those guys outside uh, were doing a lot better. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, also the, the 1890. I don't know if you're familiar with the 1890, but that was thought to be a corona. So oh, this wouldn't be the first time we've had a corona. And if you if you calculate for the you know the much smaller population back then. The number of deaths it produced was about what we're getting from this one. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, so. but as I was saying, like here in Hong Kong, we haven't locked down, not at all. Not okay. There was one situation, one time where we actually reduced um, restaurants to take fifty percent capacity. Um, yeah. Government tried to stop bars because we found that that was a, a vector, a, a source of infection. But you know, people were just like, "Fuck that!" <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like we need yeah. our bars. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, here it went province by province. So Alberta, where I'm in, supposedly locked down very hard. But of uh -huh. course, in, in Okotoks, we just disobeyed. I mean, this is kind of like cattle country and, uh, you know, <laughs> not uh, people don't really obey the government that much. So, you know, in a sense, they locked down some businesses, but people just kept doing what they normally do. But in British Columbia, I don't think they locked down as hard. And also, yeah. oddly enough, they didn't get as strong a virus. Yeah, see, it's a weird, it's a weird virus. But I think that people can't freak out to this degree when they get things because, you know, if you look at look at Africa, for instance, they have malaria sweeping through all the time, and the death rate for that is at least what we're getting from this SARS two. You know, that that kills a lot of people, and especially when you look at years lost, because killing the the young people quite often. So when you look at the number of years lost, it's really really high, and they have all kinds of other, you know, viruses, parasites, all sorts of other things. If they were like locking down and freaking out the way Westerners are now. They would get nothing done at all. They'd be on on nonstop lockdown, or they'd starve. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, people have been coddled too much with uh, these cotton gloves. 
Yeah, you know, I think they should have locked down the obesity epidemic instead. Like if you had to, if you say we're going to do a lockdown, I would think, oh, you're going to you're going to lock up those fast food restaurants because you know if you go through certain places, like, I don't want to I don't want to disparage uh, you know people who are overweight, but there's an awful lot of them and it's very bad for their health. And they would yeah. probably sell say they would like to be thinner. So if yeah. you were to if you were to have a lockdown, maybe you should lock up those Burger Kings, McDonald's, <laughs> this kind of thing. I completely agree with you. I completely agree. But it also it also just makes it it, it makes America rather boring because wherever you go, there's there's the same like I don't know they call it a Wendy's, maybe a McDonald's, and some other thing that it's just it's like a rubber stamp. Every place you go, it's got exactly the same thing. It's like a monoculture. Yeah, um, yeah it is. Yeah, it's just. Uh, yeah, it's not <laughs> definitely not an interesting place. I know, yeah. yeah but, the, but there's some yeah. good good American. I have some good American friends though. It's strange though. A lot of them are I guess that whole gun control thing. They're almost thinking of going the European way where a lot of people were talking about gun control. They're worried about school shootings and stuff. They have gone in total reverse. This this one affected this SARS too. The the whole gun control debate is now settled for the opposite side of what I would have thought. So, you know, I talk to my American friends now, they have all got thousands of rounds of ammo and and uh they say when they're going up to the gun stores to get even more guns they find the shelves are empty every last gun is sold and uh, the gun shop owners were saying 40 percent of the people they're selling to were first time so they were having they were having three million new gun registrations for like new gun owners every month so, they, they so were, the rest of the world were, goes after toilet paper america yeah. goes after guns <laughs> Guns and ammo, yeah. Like when I was visiting my buddy in California, and he had a lot of like um, he had a seven thousand dollar military rifle with like a triple laser sight and thousands of rounds of ammunition. And everything. My friends in Florida, the same. They're all heavily armed now. It's rather so, concerning. It's rather concerning that I mean. Well, they were already number one in the world for gun ownership. Now there there has to be some new category where they're far above. They're probably double what they were before. <laughs> but of course, their police systems breaking down as well. So it's like the law of the jungle. I guess you you have to be armed in that circumstance. It's yeah. almost like Yemen. You know, in Yemen, if you can afford a gun, you got one. Yeah. Well, South Africa, I believe you can. Well, you used to be able to buy an AK forty seven for a loaf of bread. Um, yeah, I mean the bullets were more expensive, so but you could get the gun pretty easily. But uh, yeah, for the yeah. bullets, <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh Jesus, yeah. No, I don't know. Hey, things. One things of my buddies almost of... shot with an AK. He was uh, taking his motorcycle down between Ethiopia and uh, northern Kenya, and he was going along a particular stretch of highway where there was some Samburu tribesmen, and they waved to him, and he, he waved back, and then wanted to pull out an AK and blasted him, and it uh, knocked out. Did the they actually the Yeah, yeah, they shot. They shot at him. Now, the bullets only destroyed the back brakes of his bike and kind of ruined the back wheel. But he managed to get a few more clicks down the road, and he ditched the bike, and he hid in some thorn bushes, and it was getting dark. And he was down there for a television show. He was doing the um, Africa Bike Adventure, where he takes his motorbike around Africa through as many countries as he could go to, but filming the whole while. And it, was getting, and it, was, it ended up being a show on, I think, the UK travel show. I'm not sure who picked it up. But the weird thing was he had a little button he could press that the producer had given him, that if he presses this button, a bunch of special forces from nearby base would uh, use helicopters to reach him as quickly as they could and try to extract him. But he didn't want to use that because he thought, well, these Samburu are either going to find me and kill me, or and then a helicopter will arrive and just find my body, and the producer will be annoyed that I, I blew ten thousand bucks, <laughs> or you know, or they'll or they'll sort of like not find me and uh, off I go, right? So he was hiding in the bushes and they were looking around and looking around, but it was too dark and eventually they left. <laughs> then, then he, then he went up to the road again and he had to hitchhike along and some police picked him up. And when he told the police what would happen, they were just laughing. And they said, oh, yeah, the Samburu kills several people a day on this road. 
And uh, he wasn't aware that it was that bad. I guess they'd become quite bandit, banditry. They'd become popular in that time period. Now, I, I was up on a different road at the same time where there's supposed to be bandits, but I didn't encounter any. That was for going, I went up into Lake Turkana, an area north of there. This must be a major concern for you, isn't it? In, in some of the wilder parts of the world, like bandits, yeah. highwaymen. Yeah, getting shot up can be a problem. Like, for instance, when I was in um, Herat, I couldn't go visit the Minaret of Jam because the locals said it was so dangerous because of Taliban that, the, that I would have to take 10 troops with me, you know, armed and all that. And I've done some armed tourism, but I didn't have the money on me at that time. To, I didn't want to spend, you know, a few thousand dollars just to see a minaret. But I'm going to get a chance now. So, so um, one of my buddies he used to do business in um, Afghanistan. And uh, actually, the Taliban tried to kill him. They, they blew up the hotel he was in, but he'd, he'd escaped and gone to the hotel next door. So when they Think blew up the hotel, he was just... They tried to kill him. He was yeah, the target. They, they were trying to kill him, so they thought they were bombing him in the hotel. But it turned out he had checked out of that hotel, and he was in the hotel next door because he thought they were going to try to bomb him. And sure enough, they bombed that hotel, and they were blasting away there, but they, they didn't manage to kill him. But he, he met this guy whose um, dad is like in with the warlords from northern Afghanistan. And this guy's uh, living in California now, so I went out to visit him. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, come and visit in Herat. I'm going there all the time. So now I've got like an offer that if I go in and visit in Herat again, I won't just be wandering along on my own. I'll have some army support so I can go see the Minaret of Jam and a few things that otherwise would have been too expensive to do. Because he's, um, this guy's pretty tight with the warlords up there. I mean, not the general. So he's he's got a free pass to get into that. Yeah, and I had another couple of buddies who knew that the um, the Sange guy, I think his name was, the, the Uzbek guy. I'm not sure if you yeah. ever saw him. He's got a strange looking face. He's that warlord who used to he's an ethnic Uzbek, but he used to be one of the warlords of the Northern Alliance. I think it's General oh, DeSange was his name. Yeah, like yeah. one of my Swedish buddies is a, an operator and uh, his job was to watch DeSange because they were giving a lot of money to um, you know, arrange, you know, armed attacks against the Taliban. But they were worried that he was gonna take the money. And at one time he was making off with a cash box. And my buddy had to point a gun at him and say, hey, one more step and I'll blast you. Right? <laughs> you had to put the money back. He got shot no. when he was up there, but the flak jacket stopped it and he managed to keep the bullet. Good God. Good God. You know, I suppose like being in your situation, it's like you, you're, you're in the, you know, the road less traveled. So as a result, you get to meet some very, very interesting people. Um, uh, yeah, they're fascinating people. Like when there's only a few foreigners in a country, they're almost always fascinating. Yeah. I found that with Rwanda. When I went to Rwanda for a while, um, there were a bunch of expat parties and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And well, obviously they're quite different from the expats out here in Hong Kong. But the expats down there were, were, were absolutely fast. The parties were fantastic, fantastic <laughs> yeah. compared to like you know some of the stuff out here. Um, yeah, I managed one party when I was there, but it was with. Um, what was it? It was like a oh one of those UN development things. I forget yeah. exactly. Oh no, maybe it was no, it was USAID actually. But the guy's okay. the guy's wife was with UN development. He was a the girl was a Kazakh and he was an American. Yeah, and they had something at the USAID compound where like a little bit of a party going on there. Yeah. It's funny because he had he had a um, you know that poem the development set. I think it's called the development set. But anyway, it's a poem kind of like ironically making fun of people who are trying to do uh, you know uh, foreign aid. And he had Too that on his wall. <laughs> yeah, so it was, it, was making, it was making fun of the foreign aid people with their little, you know, pictures on the wall of themselves with, like, smiling Africans or whatever. Right, yeah, right, so. right. With a fly on the same, face. Same right. as ironic, ironic sort of poem, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
But it's funny talking to the really jaded drunk uh, developers because they know that, you know, you have to be really, really smart and very careful to successfully do development. You, most development fails. And, uh, you know, you'd probably be better off just trying to do business because most of it fails. You have, you know, you're up against insurmountable odds and, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of problems with trying to do development. You, I mean, you're always at, at risk of taking away the agency of the people you're working with. And then you're often up against warlords who've already divided up the economy and just if you're... It's, it's very hard to tell people what to do, basically. I mean, if you're some so, sort of imperial conqueror, you can do that. But just there as just a voice, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Well, the other people have concerns that are far more serious. And the way business is done there, it's almost the equivalent of like the way gangsters would do business in America. That would be the way a regular businessman would do business in probably two-thirds of the countries on Earth. Even, even some of the, the ex-Soviet places, like Ukraine and uh, you know Uzbekistan, places like that, Kazakhstan even. Like uh, business is is gangsterish, and uh, if you're not kind of a gangster, you can forget it. Yeah, yeah. In in China, it's also similar. In certain parts, you've got this this concept called guanxi, and um, which means face. So, yeah. you know, it's 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 very much sort of wheeling and dealing, and like how much benefits do I get from you know <laughs> this sort of thing? Yeah. And also in Africa, South Africa too. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's kind of been, what's your what's your what's your opinion on on maybe we can go a little bit more political. What's your opinion on the way China's going? They they're doing this whole what's it uh, uh, um, something in belt something in belt endeavor where oh, basically yeah, I think I agree with the geopolitical analyst uh, Peter Zihan with his analysis of that, and I find a lot of the other geopolitical people are saying something similar. So this belt and road thing is just a way mm -hmm. to dump product. So, you know, China overproduces concrete and uh, steel and things like that. And they can't really dump it to other countries now because, you know, countries are really sensitive about stuff being dumped into their markets now. So they can't get away with that anymore. So they're, they're trying to make it part of this belt and road where they're actually just, you know, getting rid of excess product. Now, you could say, why don't they produce less? But if they did that, then they would really anger a lot of workers who lose their jobs because a lot of the uh, companies are, in a sense, government owned or owned by the individual provinces. So, you know, it's not the way business works in China is you're not necessarily trying to make money in a lot of cases. If you're any sort of connection to the government, your real job is social control and to make sure people have jobs so they won't march on Beijing. And loyalty, loyalty yeah. to the party. Yeah, so they're not really looking at the bottom line. That's why their debt is ratcheting up at this enormous rate. And it'll probably all end in tears. I mean, you know what happened with Japan? They had a lost decade or even decade and a half. Well, you know, the geopolitical analysts think that China's probably due for a lost decade at least. And some people say it'll, it might break up, so it might become unstable. And that's why they've been really clamping down so much. Like this whole anti-corruption thing they have, it's not about corruption so much. It's just making sure there's no powers in China that could challenge the government. Because they're worried that rocky times are coming and they really need to have a tight grip on things. So it's, it reminds, <laughs> it's it reminds me of, of peer review in science, which can be uh, sometimes interpreted as... Let's make sure that we can weed out anybody who's going to compete with us. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. So, what, what's your opinion on, on, on specifically the aggressive moves that that uh, that's happening towards Hong Kong? I mean, Hong Kong is going through some pretty traumatic times, um, in the sense that you know, like uh, the the one one country two systems is now being eroded quite significantly. Yeah, it has. But you know, Hong Kong used to have no cards, but now you have a card to play. So I think Hong Kong will be all right. And that card to play is, you have to look at what's going on with London. 
So, so London was not interested in having the UK leave the European Union because they, they do a lot of finance there and they were worried that it might damage the city of London, which it probably would have. And in fact, all the geopolitical analysts were saying, oh, yeah, the, the British are about to get clobbered because the EU is going to make they're going to make an example of them to say, here's what happens if you leave us, you get crushed. So this was about this hammer was about to fall in the UK. But then um, SARS-2 came along. And it kind of saved them because it's caused so much damage to the EU. They, like the EU will be lucky to survive this. They really have a lot of damage now. And they're in no situation. They're not strong enough now to punish the UK property. But they will be able to do like half the damage they would have. But now I think uh, Boris is seeing a way out of this where the Southeast Asian countries are probably going to do very well for developing now. So, so China's going to contract. They're not going to be as powerful. But Southeast Asia is going to be doing extremely well over the next 10 years. And he's probably thinking about how it's the Chinese diaspora who are in charge of a lot of business there. And they're Cantonese speakers for the most part. Not entirely, but a lot of them are associated with the Cantonese. And, of course, Hong Kong is involved in banking. And they're also in, involved in you know, the, the Cantonese community to some extent. So this is what's behind his, you know, apparently, and then actually quite generous offer to say that he'll allow a path to citizenship for 3 million Hong Kong people. And part of this is he wants to cement London is maybe maybe London gets kicked back a little bit in terms of their their ability to succeed in Europe. But if Southeast Asia is the new place where banking's going on and commercial banking, well then um, London could use its association with these Hong Kong people who'll be given you know extra incentive to care about London, and perhaps they can get in on this new Southeast Asia action. So this is the card now that Hong Kong has to play, and they might be able to play it well. So instead of becoming the the gateway, as, as typically the case is with Hong Kong, the gateway into China. Now it becomes Hong Kong becomes the gateway into Southeast Asia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that'll, that'll be the plan, I think. This is my own ideas, but I just noticed yeah, this. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Like the, the, uh, as soon as Bojo, or Boris Johnson, <clears throat> um, mentioned this, uh, the, the, the very first reaction from Beijing was like, well, if, if you do that, we're going to... We're going to make those those people with the BNO passports, the British National Overseas passports. We're going to force them to choose or uh, to choose one passport. So it's either yeah. going to be the BNO or else the Hong Kong passport. Yeah. And of course, you can, you can still see, but you know, Japan does that as well. But you can see how still it's still a card to play. So you have the counter move by the Chinese. They're trying to nullify that card a little bit. But you know, yeah. maybe maybe Boris is thinking some of the richer ones might want to want to leave, and if they settle in London. You know, maybe London could attempt to set up another little banking center somewhere in Southeast Asia. It looks like they're going to be cut off from China to some extent and definitely yeah. from Europe. But if they can, but Southeast Asia is going to go well and they can get a bit of banking out of there. I mean, it's not ideal for them, but it's still worth trying. Since, since the, the, the stuff that's gone down here in, in Hong Kong, there's been an uptick in, in capital inflow into Singapore like by 40%. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's, 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 quite, it's quite huge. But the thing is, like, the thing about Singapore is that even though it's quite stable and you know, seems pretty good at the moment. Um, what happens when the next president comes in? We don't know. You see, yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a danger. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, exactly. I think it's everywhere now. Like, I think almost every country is unstable now. Like, if you look at the United States, it's seeming to destabilize. I don't know if you noticed. Like, do you have a lot of friends in the United States? I have a few friends in the United States, um, mainly I technical quite a people few on Facebook. Anyway, but what I'm noticing now is they are defriending people of the wrong tribe so if like, you know, have various friends in the United States some of them might be left or some of them right they're dividing into left and right now and it's becoming tribal and it's especially the left is unfriending anyone who's even slightly right 
So it's more like driven by the left, but it amounts to the same thing. So if the, if the left unfriends the right, it's still a split. And it looks like they're becoming increasingly hostile to each other. So it's interesting to see what's going on there. I mean, I mean, after a while, you can't even run a democracy if you get uh, people not even talking to each other. So they're, they're moving in that direction. We'll see what happens. I mean, I think it's the last the... grasp of the... You know, so you have, this... so you have a situation where the Americans were running this kind of overseas hegemonic quasi-military empire. And now it's not working out so much because you have a populist like Trump is trying to withdraw that. He just took a whole bunch of troops back from Germany or now Wood, and he's tried to get out of Syria and all kinds of things. You can see the military... Um, the military is quite angry with them and the military industrial complex as well. So you have like the, the old guard in America. It used to be the Republican Democrats were quite similar. And now this populist got in and they're very annoyed because they, they used to have things their own way for about 50 years. Like it didn't matter, like the difference between Barack Obama and like the Bushes and people, they're, they're almost identical. They had the same foreign policy for the longest time and they had the same kind of commercial policy as well. But now you have a split that's kind of Wall Street against Main Street. And it looks like Main Street is starting to align with Trump and uh, Wall Street's going with the dams. And, of course, as the elites battle, the regular people will get caught up in it kind of as pawns. They often don't even know what they're doing. But we'll see if they end up uh, fighting in the street or what goes on there. Got some political instability coming along. How severe do you think it'll get? Well, it looks pretty bad now, but, you know, it's been this bad before. Like, remember with the L.A. riots, it was pretty bad back then. So, you know... And also, if you look at Brazil, you know, Brazil's even worse than what, uh, you know, America is now, and they still somehow function. So we'll, mm -hmm. we'll see. I mean, it could, be, it could be almost like, you know, when the time of the fall of the Roman Empire, where people made their own little forts in the wilderness, and they'd have it heavily armed, and then eventually things went feudal after that. So yeah. we'll see if a little of that comes. Like, you might have all the rich people living in gated communities. I mean, you're used to this from South Africa, right? All the rich people have their own community. And like, if some of them say, we want gun control, but then they're the very ones who hire the armed guards. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. be the leftists and the ones who are right wing, maybe they all have their own guns, but uh, it amounts to the same thing. You get a heavily armed society. This, this cancel culture that you're talking about, um, with, uh, you know, people are uh, long, long friends. They've just sort of based, okay, your microphone appears to be noisy. Uh, sorry, I'm just checking some error messages that might be appearing. But uh, oh. yeah, this cancel culture you're, 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 you mentioned, It, I find it rather concerning because, you know, people seem to have taken this concept of free speech and to have interpreted as, you know, somebody who just goes off saying insulting things. And, and I, think, I think this is a very unhealthy way of looking at it. You know, free speech um, essentially means that I can say something such that, and I don't have the consequences of the government putting a bullet in my head. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm able to I'm able to highlight uh, tyrannical structures uh, and speak about them, discuss. But more so on an individual level is like prior to the days of free speech. If I didn't like you, Mike, and I didn't like your principle, Mike, <laughs> I'd reach for my we weapon and stab you. You know, yeah. I'm not maybe maybe I am <laughs> over this. Yeah, but but yeah, like uh, it it opens up a buffer of dialogue so that we're able to come to an understanding about what, what, you know, certain, you know, meeting of minds so that we don't reach for our weapons. But here we've got a situation where people are, are immediately, you know, removing that, that avenue of, of dialogue. And if this, if this continues, then weapons are going to be drawn. 
Yeah, yeah, it'll happen. I mean, I've seen it happen in a lot of countries. They spiral down and they end up with civil war. I mean, the U.S. isn't there yet, but they're closer than I've seen for a long time. I mean, in the, in the early 90s, they were getting that way a little bit, but then they stepped back from that. But now it looks like they're they're quite heavily going in. I wonder what will happen. Like, it doesn't matter who wins the next election. We'll see what happens in the streets after that. Because let's say uh, Biden wins, you know, there's going to be raging on the part of the uh, right or, you know, vice versa if Trump gets in again. And it's, it's weird because it's very similar people. I don't know why they're, they're so up in arms. I mean, they're, they're fighting over which elderly white male guy with a bit of dementia who kind of gropes women. They're, like, <laughs> <laughs> like they're pretty similar guys, right? Both you and I see that. I mean, it's just uh, <laughs> indistinguishable, indistinguishable yeah. basis. Oh, and what's but, more, they have kind of corrupt families. Like Trump's family is a little bit corrupt. I'm not sure how corrupt. But Biden's family's for for sure corrupt. Like I, I know a friend who's uh, who knows Hunter Biden and also knows like Pelosi's um, kid, and uh, yeah, they're like heavy drug takers, heavy drinkers, uh, involved in well for Biden's son anyway. He was involved in all that corruption out in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, can you pause one moment? It seems like I've got a delivery. I was hoping that this wouldn't happen. One moment. Okay, so so I somebody's going to come to the door any moment and okay. deliver something. So I'll I'll have to jump up and run, and then uh, I'll be able to. Get back to you. But anyway, the, the, the kids of these rich people, so these elites who are the ones who rule things, their kids become quite corrupt. And it's almost unavoidable. Like, I'm not trying to criticize Biden. I'm sure he tries to do his best. But, uh, you know, his, um, his kids and Trump's kids as well, they can't help but, but be involved in corruption. Because it's hard if you're in, if you're grown, if you grow up in that kind of environment where you're considered all for important. Never- Ding dong. One moment, one moment coming. All right, okay. Big package delivered. I don't know what's in there. Wife bought something. Charles and Keith. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Well, if it, okay, so be, rich, rich people, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, they can't time. avoid being corrupt. I mean, it's not really their fault. It's just their kids become corrupt because of the, the toxic environment they grew up in, and they become a little bit corrupted as well. So it's just one of those unavoidable things. You know, if you get higher and higher into the, the halls of power, eventually the corruption seeps in. So it's it's unavoidable actually. But I, I, yeah. it makes me wonder why people are so up in arms, like battling each other over these two very similar politicians. I mean, maybe one, one of them favors Wall Street, which went quite heavily into overseas investment for globalization. And the other one favors, favors Main Street, which wants to sort of return to like keeping business within America. But if you're just some normal person, it's hard to see how it's that important, really. I mean, I, mean, I know they say there's civil rights things involved, but I believe that happens more on the state level. So you can see that the, you know, the American president is not nearly as powerful, let's say, as the Canadian prime minister. Like he's not making laws that apply quite strictly to everyone. He's kind of, um, he's more like more symbolic and he controls some things like the military, but he's usually not involved in the day-to-day activities in the city. 
So it's, it's kind of funny. You can just see the, the emotions running high and people dividing into little camps and attacking each other. And I see the same things in Africa. You know, the different tribes get involved in tribal politics. It's kind of sad. Um, but, you know, in Africa, certain parts and, well, in the extreme cases, you get the Hutus and Tutsis. Yeah. Yeah, they got out of control. But, you know, there's an interesting study. You probably haven't read it because it was kind of buried. Not too many people talked about it. But there's a woman who went there just after the genocide. And she was interested in the very specific question. What happened in villages that were all Tutsi or all Hutu? Because how would they find the enemy to attack? And she wondered, did they find a nearby village and attack? But what she found is they actually attacked each other in almost as much ferocity as they did elsewhere. So you had, um, instead of like half of, them, so, half of them attacking the other, it was like maybe 80% of that level. So still quite a lot of deaths. And, if, and when they finished that, they would attack the pygmies. So they'd go after, you know, uh, people who were similar to the Bambudi. I forget what the name of their local pygmies are. But they would attack and kill pygmies. And once they ran out of pygmies, they would, they would attack each other, even though they're all the same tribe. So it showed that probably humans had reached their maximum population density. I mean, same thing happened in Scotland, right? Where it got to the point where a guy's farm would be, you know, a few square meters with a, a couple of potato plants or whatever. It happened in Scotland. It happened in Ireland as well. And, you know, after, after a while, when they, you keep dividing the um, fields, eventually it's not enough to live on and people just go nuts and attack each other. And I don't think the Rwandans were especially prone to genocide. Like, like I said in my book, I'm not sure if it made it to the final edit, but like I said, I'd rather be among the Rwandans if it was coming down to that sort of food stress because they were much tougher and they'd be, they would go to genocide uh, much later than what Westerners would do because Westerners are very soft. So they would probably start killing each other you know, just halfway to the point where the Rwandans would still be smiling. Yeah, you get that kind, of, that kind of poverty and that sort of attempting to, to live off Substances, um, subsistence, agriculture—it's difficult. So I don't—I don't blame them for genociding each other. I mean, we could have could have tried to stop it, but it's, it's kind of hard to see how we would have. But was it was was Rwanda very overpopulated at the time? Yeah, extremely overpopulated. And the locals there were telling me as well that the the fields kept getting divided and divided till eventually you could barely. There's no way you could raise a family on a given field, and at that point they just attacked each other. And yeah, in the in the villages that they weren't you know, didn't have access to a potential enemy. They just attacked each other. Or they attacked pygmies, which had nothing to do with anything. You know, they were just off doing their own thing, but they got attacked. So yeah. it just shows us breaking points for humans. Yeah. But do you see, do you see any similar sorts of breaking points out, in, out in, in, in the States? Well, I suppose the, the, the pandemic has, has contributed a lot towards this, uh, yeah, mentality. a lot of that rioting was people were cooped up too long, so they just decided to go wild afterward. But, yeah. you know, that was yeah. That's what Sweden was saying when they said they wanted a sustainable uh, response to the virus. So they made their sort of just a mild lockdown because they thought that's more sustainable in the long run. Whereas the United States did a heavier lockdown, but it turned out that when they, after a while, the people just go crazy, break the, break the lockdown and just, uh, you know, <laughs> rampage through the streets in some cases. <laughs> so... <laughs> In a lot you know, of cases, this kind of stuff because I'm often in places where there's a riot, right? Like, like when I, you know, places in Africa, where there's just people throwing bricks all around me, gunshots everywhere. <laughs> what do you do? What do you do? I, I just try to okay. I need to get in somewhere, maybe find a uh, like a wall compound where there's a restaurant inside, that kind of thing. Just wait till the gunfire dies down. And... <laughs> I'll have a beer, please. I'll have a beer. I'll, I'll, I'll go out towards the end of the. Yeah, in one in one one time, I was in I was in um. 
Jerusalem, a dear friend of the uh, dear friend, uh, his 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 father looked at the he looked at the clock on the wall. And he says, mm, "No, no, no, no. We won't go at one p.m. We will not go that time." I was I know I was like, "Oh, well, really? Why not?" So anyway, it was a few hours later, uh, and uh, we arrived in Jerusalem in his car, and and we saw the streets were filled with rocks. You know, that, the, the windshields of, uh, of, of vehicles were smashed out. And, and yeah, yeah, he, he was right. He was right. There was, yeah. like, all sorts of, like, rioting and yeah. stuff going on in the streets. And, yeah. and, so and then, he, rather, you know, yeah. then he, leans in, he, leans, he leans into me and he says, don't tell my wife I took you here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I found in Iraq during the war, the locals knew when it was going to kick off. And one, one example where I was in a uh, hotel in... Uh, Baghdad and I was trying to go out and walk around in the streets and the hotel owner ran up to me and he was saying something in Iraqi and he just pushed against my chest and wouldn't let me leave the hotel. And I thought, okay, strange. So I just went and sat on one of the chairs there and waited. And a few minutes later, there was explosions and gunfire up and down the street. So he knew it was about to kick off. He didn't want his tourists to get killed. Very considerate of him. Yeah. <laughs> they thought it was quite funny to have this Canadian tourist. And <laughs> so a lot of the Iraqis were seeing if they can conspire to keep me alive. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't help the fact that I was hitchhiking around everywhere, viewing the battles and stuff. <laughs> what was Iran like? Did you did you manage to get into Iran? Yeah, yeah, I went there in two thousand three, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was two thousand three. Yeah, it was an interesting place. I mean, they're a very, they're a very civilized country, but they you know they have a lot of problems. Oh, I know when I was there during the uh, the Bam earthquake. If you're not sure if you remember that, they had quite a bad earthquake in Bam. Yeah, I was there for that earthquake. I just left Bam when it struck. But they, it was very unfortunate when the earthquake struck them because they had a lot of mud houses and they all collapsed and tens of thousands. I mean, the highest estimate I saw was 50,000 dead, but it, it might have only been a few tens of thousands killed. But uh, then they suffered even worse after that because once, once the town had collapsed and all these people had died, the central government thought they better do a good job to rebuild the place. But they decided they weren't going to pay to rebuild it. They decided they were going to pressure people into rebuilding it. So they talked yeah. to all the largest construction companies in Tehran. And they said, hey, come on, you're a big company. Give us 100 men. And they say the next one, like, oh, you're a bit smaller company. Give us 50 men. Like they went and pressured them all to give men. And eventually they had several thousand men, and they brought them down there to rebuild. Now, of course, there's unintended consequences for this methods of recruitment. Because what quality of men are going to be the ones who are given, right? Like certainly not the top-notch guys who are hard workers and conscientious. So they got their worst possible workers. And if you think in Tehran, why would someone be a, like a really bad construction worker? Well, probably because he's addicted to opium, right? So these were, these were all opium addicts. And so they went, they were, they were then placed near to the refugee camp of all the people who'd had to flee from the city. Uh, and they're living in tents with these people, but they're all opium addicts. So they got all the, the people of Bam even more involved in uh, opioids. And of course they were sharing needles. So they, ended all, they all ended up with um, HIV AIDS. Well, at least that's what I read in several reports. Yeah, so it was a complete disaster for that. But the Iranians in general are very friendly. And I went to a lot of parties there. And they were, if you knew the right people, you could get into parties where like the women were not wearing, you know, they were dressed almost like a, a club in London or something. <laughs> It'd be like <laughs> Afghan girls with weed. I even saw some guys like sniffing some blow that they got there. So, so like the upper class still had their parties. But their parties got raided by the police. It was quite hardcore. And they would go and like um, capture everyone and like put them in uh, cages and they were whipping people, but the girls were getting out of it. So I was talking to the girls at the parties, and I was saying, how often do you get captured? She said, oh, every, every two or three parties we get captured. 
were supposed to get whipped, but they were telling me how they got out of being whipped is they would, um, they slipped like a $20 bill to the female prison guard who's meant to be doing the whipping. And there'd be no judge present or no male present because I guess the Islamic court had come down with a ruling saying that man can't watch the woman disrobe to be whipped, right? But then because she paid the $20 bill, the female prison guard, like she'd rather just not be whipping someone else. So she would just make the noises of the whip and the girl would go, eh, 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 eh. And then afterwards, she put back on all this Islamic gear, right, Shador and all that. And uh, the judge is none the wiser and off she goes. And of course, but there's they, no inspection of, uh, of any beatings, right? Because you don't yeah, want to expose not for the women, though. So, yeah, so the women were getting out of it. The men were still getting whipped, though. But it was almost like a badge of honor for them. They were getting whipped for raving or whatever they were up to. Yeah, it was pretty, <laughs> it was pretty full on there. What about the rest of the stans? Tajikistan, Kazakhstan? I hear a lot of corruption is going down in that part of the yeah, world. Yeah, they're extremely corruption, corruption prone. But for part of it, I arranged something that I was jokingly calling dial a bitch. So I had a, a girlfriend who could be quite bitchy in the Russian language. And I'd be wandering around, and of course the police would try to shake me down. And I'd just go, beep, 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 beep. I'd call her. Then I'd just say, okay, it's happening again. And I'd like pass the phone to the policeman, and she'd go, blah, 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 and bitch them out in Russian. Like, <laughs> I know people who can talk to people who are your boss type of thing. <laughs> and they'd go, ooh, okay. <laughs> All right, hands off this guy. <laughs> yeah, so I'd use, use the dial a bitch method. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> It sounds also, like a really good hack, actually. to get visas. Like, I, I, met, I met even one. Like, here's an example of how hard it was to get visas. I met one guy in a hostel. And I think it was in Uzbekistan. And he seemed quite glum. And I said, what's up with you? And he goes, I've been here six weeks. And I was like, when I came here, see the persimmon tree? There weren't any fruits on it. And I could see they're, they're getting ripe, right? And they're going to be able to eat them. And I said, well, what are you doing here? And he goes, waiting for visas. And I was like, oh, I got out of that. So what, what I was doing is I was pretending to be a um, economic... Um, what was it, some sort of economic expert who had hired by the UN, but actually I just had papers indicating that. And I was going into the UN offices and they were quite trusting. So you get like kind of the visitor badge when you go in and then I'd have papers showing I'm an economic advisor to the UN. And then they're quite trusting. So they would let me, they'd say, oh, I'd say, I need to travel to the next country. And they'd say, oh, use our dedicated secretary. So I'd go down and <laughs> use her to arrange these visas like way less time. Like I get a visa in two or three days instead of six weeks. <laughs> It used to be quite hard to get visas to go through there. So I'm, I'm assuming that these papers were a forgery. Oh, yeah. Everything's a forgery there. <laughs> I, I heard about some Italians once who just had their own visa printing um, stamp equipment, and they were just going through making fake visas to every country they went to. <laughs> but for the most part, I got real visas. You know, Turkmenistan used to be super tough. I actually had, actually had to get, um, what was it now, stand tours. I get, had to get them to help. So I tried in several places and it was almost impossible to get in there. And they wanted so many, they wanted so many passport photos. Like I think they asked for 16 photos. And I was joking with them saying, what do you guys do? Like paper your walls with them? It's, it's crazy, right? But they wanted all those photos. And then when I, I crossed, um, I had to cross from Afghanistan to get into there. And they were searching me at the border, asking all kinds of questions. It was quite funny because it was this um, Turkmenistan girl. And she's quite good looking, actually, but she had a whole crew of men working with her. And they were going through my entire backpack with a fine tooth comb, just searching everything, asking all these questions. And you can see the more she was asking, asking questions, the more she was hearing about my lifestyle. You can see the frown deepening on her face. And finally, at the end, she said, stop traveling. No, she said, stop traveling. Find a woman and get married and have kids. And I was like, okay, yes, ma'am. And then she went and stamped me. And I got through. Wait, what, why would, you, why, would like she, a, why would she be annoyed by you? Uh, because you know it didn't appear that i was doing the proper turkmenistan thing they're very uh, conservative there 
So, you know, she was asking questions that were getting more and more personal about my lifestyle and be like, where's your girlfriend? Why don't you have a home? Why aren't you married and having kids and all that? I see. I see. Okay. Be done with this guy. Go get married. Settle down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I see yeah. the same thing in Syria. You know, they were um, some of the people I was staying with. If I was staying with just a local, you could see that they were big fans of Saddam Hussein. And they'd be like trying to show me videos of how great he was and saying, you should get married and have children right now. The Koran requires it. Like they're, they're very conservative through that area. Yeah, 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 now, unfortunately, yeah. Syria, they failed the taxi cast as well. I get in taxis and they would be disparaging the the um, some other group and saying how they want to attack them. And I was like, oh, no. And, of course, it was a little bit later for Syria, but eventually they collapsed into civil war as well. But they, yeah. they were a very corrupt system, and they probably still are. Like yeah. I was talking to one guy once in, I think it was in Holmes, and he had a, a carpet business. And it was doing very well. Like lots of tourists were going and buying carpets. And I you know, I used to do a bit of business myself, and I was saying, oh, so you're probably looking to expand. He goes, no, no expansion. And I said, well, why not? I mean, you've got customers lined up. And he said, I tried to expand before, and then, like, a bunch of thugs arrived from the government, and they shook me down for $50,000. So he's saying how he had to get his whole family to help bail him out of jail. And it was all because he began to look a bit more prosperous. And he said he's just going to keep his head low with small business, just hire family, that's it, you know, keep a low profile. And the thing is, throughout Syria, it was everyone doing that except for the people who are well-connected. And after a while, the anger grows. And especially in Syria, they, uh, they ran out of water. So they pursued a policy where they were going to be agriculture exporters. But unfortunately, in Syria, there's not much water. So they were drilling deeper and deeper to try to get water. And eventually, when your well runs dry, you have to drill another one. And it was getting to the point where you need like 40,000, 50,000, 80,000 just to drill well to keep your, you know, your little farm active. And after a while, you just can't do it anymore. And you're out of business, you just swarm into the cities, and then you become angry hungry and angry so yeah kicked off eventually but uh, yeah it's a, it's a beautiful country i mean they wrecked a lot of their stuff there but still there was a lot i used to say it was one of the best places to backpack through but i don't think it is anymore i haven't been back since but i imagine a lot of the stuff's broken would you would you go back in in, in syria nowadays? yeah yeah going to syria is no problem you just have to go into one zone and not others i was talking to a lot of people coming and going from syria what you hear on the news is all bullshit like you know when they say like this area is terrible or that area is terrible. You can't go there. It's not really true. They're just like in order to get into countries and say you're a refugee, you have to make stuff up. And usually the Western media goes along with it. Like, right. it, like, like for instance, you know, a lot of my friends are aware of a lot that goes on internationally. And here be example for Af- Afghanistan. So the German news were talking about Afghan refugees and they're interviewing one guy and his friends and they're, you know, doing this interview on German television. Well, of course, this interview that had Afghan guys on, it's very interesting from the point of view of the Afghans. So, of course, they're going to replay it there. And my buddy got a phone call. He knows a lot of Afghans. And they're all just laughing and laughing and laughing because they know these guys who were saying, oh, the Taliban's after me. And, oh, you know, I'm so poor and I need to be led into Germany. They knew that he's like a super rich party boy, right? Because who else has the money to make it all the way to Germany and try to come in and pretend? You know, it's just like an adventure for the, the, the young sons of these rich families. So, of course, he's just bullshitting trying to get in. I mean, I don't blame him, but I'm just saying it's quite funny. And it's the same thing with the Syrians. You know, I met quite a few of them and they were, uh, you know, they're actually, they make, like, for instance, if you're in a Syrian refugee camp, you're actually associated with the Turkish economy, which is doing rather well. So you're making a lot more money than, let's say, if you were someone living in Ukraine, for instance. Like in Ukraine, you might get a dollar an hour if you're lucky, but you can make much more if you're in, um, if you're in Syria, even in a refugee camp. And a lot, a lot of them, you know, to make money, you know, they... Those refugee camps have been picked over anyway. So, like, the, the dirtiest, sort of sleaziest Turkish men went there and sort of, in a way, bought off all the girls and women. 
So, you know, these families had the girls and women off their hands. They just had the boys around. So then it made sense to try to send them up and see if they could get through Greece, maybe get into Europe. I mean, it's desperate. It's desperate people. I don't blame them. I mean, but at the same time, you know, Europe has to kind of look after their own situation as well. So, you know, I don't blame them for what they do either. So see, it's a complicated world. Now, you, you spent some time in, in Kiev, in Ukraine. Um, yeah, most recently, recently I flew in. For, well, I, I'm going there in the summer for a little bit, but I flew in. I did a, a visit quite early on. But then when I heard that there was a rebellion going on there, I flew in to see that. So I flew in from Russia as well. So when the plane landed, uh, everyone was clapping because they were lucky we made it through. Because the same day that uh, other plane got blasted out of the sky by that Buk missile. So there was, it was uh, some some Russians who were, you know, it's either a Russian missile missile battery or it was a separatist Russian missile battery under the control of the Russians, and they accidentally blasted that uh, plane from Holland, I think it was. So that that happened the same day, but luckily my plan managed to land, and of course, like some nice shirts were stolen out of my backpack, because you can see it's just the kind of airports where they're going to steal stuff like that. But then I arrived and I went right downtown to where the Maidan protest was going on, and I found this um, hostel that was overlooking the square. And it was quite fun. I could see all the action, you know, battling against the government. When is the protest? I'm going there. Yeah, and then I actually got to see the end of the protest. I was quite interested. Like, how are they going to end this protest? Because after a while, you had you know tons of protesters occupying the square, but they wanted it clear after a while because you know the government had been changed. They met the demands of the protesters. Things had changed, and a lot of the people who had been protesting had been invited to be with the. Um, Kiev, but I think it was the first and second Kiev battalion, something like that. Anyway, their name was, and these are the protesters who went off to fight, fight on the front lines. So all that was left was a lot of these people who maybe didn't have a lot going on in their life. Like a lot of them are kind of homeless people, or semi-homeless, or alcoholics. Not all, but there's a lot like that. And this protest that had gone on for months was the most important thing that had ever happened in their life, and they, they felt it gave them a lot of meaning in what's an otherwise meaningless life. So they persisted there, manning these barricades you know, made of sandbags with their little kitchens and everything else. They persisted there preventing people from going through the square or harassing people and making you be searched as you go through their various checkpoints and basically just kind of lording it out around, but, you know, having a bit of fun with it too. It's like the fun of keeping the protest going, but eventually the government did need to uh, get rid of it. And I was curious as to how they would, they would do it. So I was really paying attention to this. And first of all, they had some girls come through when they were doing a survey but they weren't interested in talking to me, which was unusual, because usually with surveys, they want to talk to foreigners. But no, it was only locals. And they were asking what they felt about the protest and if they thought it should end now. And, of course, they're just getting this so it's political cover or something they can say in the newspapers. And then they, they went in and they talked to the various protesters and warned them that they were going to be moved out. But they could get free assistance with trucks to move out their equipment and their other things, move them somewhere else. And, of course, they were all rejecting that. So then they, they made a ruse where one of the restaurants that they were shaking down like the heavily armed men like the ones who had grenades and guns and stuff they were shaking down local restaurants for protection money well they made like a deliberate problem at that restaurant and so all the most violent guys had to go to try to sort that out but then they were surrounded by special forces and captured so now you had like the most violent like top 20 or 30 leaders were gone and you still have hundreds of people left like occupying these barracks and kitchens but now they moved to the next phase where i saw that they had a group of people who were dressed like they were very young but I could tell it's more like they were at least 25, if not some of them 35, but they were dressed like they were 18 or 20. And they all had phones and they were coordinating. And what they did is they go through and take oil and they start burning out the kitchens, like where the kitchens and the barracks were. Let's say there are 12 different you know, kitchen and barrack facilities among all the uh, 
the uh, sandbags for for how the the protest was set up. Well, they would go through and start burning one of them out, and people would be really interested in that fire. And they would wait until it was obvious that the uh, the firefighters were able to fight that fire. And then just at that time, when no one's watching, they've now made it to another kitchen. They start burning that one, but just within line of where the hose can get. So they burned them all in order like that. And eventually, when they had enough of them burned, then uh, <clears throat> the police were able to move in. And they had the police supplemented by the Kiev battalion who'd been brought back from the first li- from the front lines. So these are the people who had the moral authority to say to these guys, hey, get out of here. Like, either come with us to the front line to fight if you're truly in favor of Ukraine, or just go home. So we're able to move these people on. And then one of my buddies wanted to, like, comedy or a truck and then, like, careen around in it, going, woohoo. <laughs> so, uh, so I filmed them doing that. <laughs> Because they protested were capturing some police trucks and some fire trucks and sort of like driving around with them, smashing into things. So one of my one of my buddies wanted to do that for fun. <clears throat> but anyway, it was interesting to see. And then eventually the bulldozers moved in; they could clear everything out. So I just thought, okay, it was pretty well planned. I would give them like a seven or eight out of ten for that clearance. You can see kind of the psychological factors and the more physical factors of how they organize it. Yeah, yeah, that sounds a lot more rough than compared to the protests that were going in in Hong Kong. I mean. Hong Kongers have been protesting for months now, for months. And it's interesting seeing the evolutions of these protests. It first started in 2014, where, where protesters were, where protesters were, you know, opening umbrellas so that the policemen don't get wet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like as things sort of progress along, you know, a few policemen start firing uh, tear gas into the... Yeah, into hardening the hearts, hardening opinions, you know, that's how it progresses. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, and then all of a sudden, now we're starting to give labels to each other. You know, the the, the cops are calling the protesters cockroaches, and the cockro- and the and the protesters are calling the cops uh, <laughs> dogs. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, this is a, it's a typical sort of uh, approach that you want to dehumanize somebody, so that yeah. you know, give, give them a name, and then yeah. and then okay. yeah. That that pro- it's interesting because I've seen that process go all the way to the civil war quite a few times. That's why I'm a little bit concerned with what's going on in the states because I can see also that it's getting it's just starting. It's like halfway along that path, and I wonder if a lot of these you know quite soft Westerners realize what things get like when that happens. I don't like, think they. Like yeah, like a lot of like university women and stuff. I'm not sure if they're aware that uh, university women who are quite soft they're not safe in that sort of environment. So if you push it all the way to the civil war environment. The, the women have a much harder time. And if you can't get back to normal, women can't even, like everything they had for the, the second wave or third wave feminism, all these advances they've made, that all gets rolled back. Because let's say the economy becomes more of like a broken civil war country, then you can't really be a businesswoman anymore. Or if you, mm-hmm. if you are, you can't rise that high because it's the really vicious people who are willing to apply savage violence become the ones who have to be in charge of all the businesses. And the women are relegated to a much lower rung. And there's where you notice they start wearing high heels again and dressing really well because they're trying to, you know, get some attention of someone, you know, one of the men who has money. It kind of becomes more primitive. I'm not sure they're quite aware of that. Or maybe they are and they just think they can push it to the limit and just keep, you know, on that brink but uh, keep from going over that limit. But it's, it's a dangerous game. Yeah, that's like, yeah, that's like putting fire right next to Firestarter. Mm. And, uh... yeah. yeah, we'll see how it goes. I mean, people like me or my friends were fine, right? Like, I don't mind, like, you know, when I was younger, I used to sleep with a loaded machine gun quite often, (laughs) just (laughs) prepared for any sort of action. Yeah, because, you know, things go on, right? And for a lot of my friends, you know, they live quite uh, energetic lives, and they're just used to that kind of thing. 
like some of my friends are breachers, like they're trained to blast through walls and like clear the people out of the people and you know clear out the people in the next room. Like a, they're used to this kind of situation. So for me, it's not very bad. I'm just saying that certain people who are very soft, university educated kids are one who's very concerned about human rights in the abstract or you know legal rights and stuff. I'm not sure they know that what they're getting into, and I'm not sure that they're aware of what sort of person is going to thrive in the environment that they are creating. You know, the Chinese have a, a, a name for this sort of person, particularly, you know, exactly the sort of very lefty liberal um, uh, virtue, you know, virtue signaling sort of person, Baitor, Baitor. And, and it's, it's very interesting that, you know, the Chinese are, like have immediately cottoned on to this. They've given it a name, um, you know, <laughs> it's like, all right, okay, if you, if you want to sort of like, destabilize this country you just get this group of people uh you know in a, in a tiz uh, I mean, they, you know. they mean well but i'm just saying they don't know what they're getting themselves into <laughs> we'll see i mean maybe yeah. they're wise enough to pull back before they, they push it that far because you know it is possible also to push for what they want and maybe they can get it and that's possible but you know if they do if they do get into a violent situation they're not going to thrive under that environment no, no, definitely yeah. not. Specifically, especially women are going to suffer a lot from this. As yeah, you I know they don't seem to be aware of that. Like women have it tough in a lot of these countries, and if things even even get a little bit violent, they really, really their standard of living goes down because they they get severely restricted in what they can do. They can't walk here, or they can't do that. Even yeah. more, like there's already they have reason to complain about not being able to walk at night here or in this neighborhood. But you know, yeah. they it's going to get much, much worse if things get uh, more militarized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the things I really liked about Hong Kong is that like a woman can walk around on the streets at three o'clock in the morning and, you know, nothing will happen. But if things continue like this, a, a mate of mine, a mate of mine, uh, I suppose I shouldn't go too much into this, but he's, he's in the police force, specifically the bomb dispo disposal area. And yeah. um, he's telling me about the, the caches of explosives that he's finding uh, here in Hong Kong. T A T A T P and you yeah. know this stuff this stuff is 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 it's from abroad. It's from abroad. Yeah. So there's always there's, a danger it's gonna kick off and if people have access to that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. One wonders is this gonna be like a an IRA type of scenario if we were to, you know, if it were to become so extreme, you know, yeah. with the youngsters, the youngsters who've been brought up into this environment of like, you know, protesting on the streets and you know, being on the front lines. They've hardened themselves so far that that you know they look now at the police force not as humans but as the enemy. And mm -hmm. then we reach Hong, you know, Hong Kong. Suddenly we've got the taxi driver test. Oh God, can you imagine that? Yeah, one of my mates is <laughs> one of my mates has just purchased a property down in New Zealand. He's like, "Fuck this!" Oh yeah, shit. a lot of people are trying to get an extra little bolt hole there. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at Singapore, but I was thinking, oh, you know what? It's like, you know, I'd rather have one foot in Asia and another foot completely out of Asia, you know, yeah. <laughs> maybe a place like New Zealand, far away from where the nuclear bombs fall. <laughs> yeah. But this whole anarchist thing, like it's kind of an anarchist uprising. It's sort of a bit old hat to me because like um, some, I was friends with a family that were uh, Sons of Freedom anarchists. So the Sons of Freedom wanted to bomb and destroy the Canadian government. But the, the weird thing is they were vegetarian christian um anarchists so they were against material possessions and they had like a form of christianity where they believed in just you should stand in the snow and just sing and you have like the spirit of god comes into you this kind of idea but they also didn't believe in material possessions so they're very prone to burn down government buildings or set explosives 
So, uh, like, um, one of my close friends, his dad that I knew quite well also, he um, was setting explosives to blow up the pylons that carry power into a major mine. He did a few few years in prison for that. And then he got grabbed by the government. They stuffed him into the, the same concentration camp they used for the Japanese during World War II. They still had that thing running, like, in the interior of British Columbia. And they uh, stuffed him into there. So him and all, him and all the, like, his, he was a kid at the time. So he was, like, dragged out from under the bed by the RCMP. <laughs> They flung him into this concentration camp. All you know, all the uh, all the men were put in jail from his uh, his cult, <laughs> and the women did a naked march through Vancouver. They were trying to protest so against like hundreds or even thousands of them were marching around naked. <laughs> 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 this is all this stuff that used to kick off. This is like back in the sixties and seventies, and then um, you know eventually it sort of moderated a bit. Like I think it was old, one old grandmother was still trying to burn down stuff. Even though she was over eighty years old, and this was in, into the, <laughs> it, it kind of calmed down though. But you know, these these things happen, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. For me, it, it doesn't bother me too much. But you know, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what the regular people. I mean, I, I just find that the people, like I've been in Canada so long now, the people are very soft here, and down in the states too. A lot of them are very, very soft. We'll see how they deal with what's coming. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the life. Life has just been too cushy, too cushy for these UK, Canada. Yeah. Uh, well, things used to be more wild. Like, for instance, this this um, same guy I knew who was bombing stuff, like uh, in the seventies or I think even early eighties, he was um, working in a in a place where it gets up around forty degrees Celsius because a lot of you know fruit orchards around there. I think it was near near Soyuz or Kelowna, someplace like that in the interior of British Columbia, and he was driving with a buddy in a convertible car. And they uh, came near near a waterfall. They thought, oh, well, that could be refreshing. So they pulled the convertible up to the waterfall that was right near the road. And they let the car fill up with water. So, And it, was, it had enough of a seal that they were actually in a swimming pool as they were driving along the road. And then they had, you know, of course, they were drunk because everyone used to drive drunk all the time. And even when I was out there, like, people would just be drinking their beers. And when they used to, like, drink their beers and throw the empties out. But by the time, you know, I was living there, you used to drink your beers, but not throw the empties out. That was considered rude, but you'd still be drunk driving and have the beers in your hand. But, but anyhow, they, they were coming around the corner and they couldn't quite make it because the, the water threw off the suspension. So they ended up skidding and smashing over a telephone box that was right near a police station in the small town. And the sheriff came out and just saw them there. He's like, get out of that car. And they open up the car and what pours out is a whole swimming pool worth of water and empty beers and like two stumbling drunks. And this is like around 1980, sometime like that. So the, the sheriff's just shaking his hand. He goes, get get in your car and get out of here, and I don't want to see you again. Because right? <laughs> I half made him laugh, so he decided to let them off. But it's kind of like... <laughs> yeah, the ruse, the ruse of a serious cop is now over, right? He's yeah. collapsed on the floor. <laughs> oh, fascinating. Jesus. I suppose one thing that the Canadians have got is that the coldness sort of like, you know, makes them a lot more robust. But now you've got all this internal in, in, indoor heating and whatnot. Yeah, I guess they're going to be softies now. Uh, yeah, probably becoming too soft. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ever make it over to Hawaii? Yeah, I've been to Hawaii too much. Yeah, because oh, yeah. to me it's not especially exciting. Like even once after I finished, a, I think it was a half-year trip through various Pacific islands, I, I had like arranged so I'd have an extra seven days in Hawaii. Oh, and, yeah. you know, I was, I was there in Hawaii and like I went into Honolulu because I hadn't been there before. 
I go, mm, this doesn't look like much. And I found a hostel. And they said, no, nah, no beds. And I thought, oh, you know what? I'll just go back to the airport. So I just went back to the airport. And I said, do you have any flights somewhere else? And they said, yeah, yeah, we got one to Vancouver, but it's in uh, 10 hours. And I said, okay, I'll get the flight. And I just, like, waited in the airport for 10 hours <laughs> rather than go out and see anything in Hawaii because I'm so bored with the place. <laughs> so I got to notice what goes on in the airport. There were all these homeless people. And in order to exist in the airport, they pretend that they're, you know, they have these old suitcases that have, like, duct tape on them. And clearly, they're not really passengers. But it's just, like, that's their ruse for how the homeless person can remain in the airport. And they kind of drift almost like the jellyfish of Jellyfish Lake in Micronesia, where you yeah. see, like, they, they would drift to one part of the airport and then back to the other, like, carrying their luggage with them. As the following yeah and then they occupy their little sleeping seats and then because you know americans don't really deal with homeless in any kind of unorganized way so instead they're just sort of occupying some kind of liminal space in the airport <laughs> drifting like a jellyfish yeah so your final country that you went to you you were holding off was was ireland yeah I believe. yeah so the last one was ireland and i ended up doing ireland for free as a result because, uh, you know, I ended up doing a talk show and a few other things that were media. And then it became like a little bit of a mini sensation. And as a result, I got offers to stay in every hotel for free, all these tours for free. I could, didn't even have to pay for drinks. So the entire uh, <laughs> several weeks in Ireland was for free. Might not have been the best idea because, you know, I, I, I went to Ireland specifically to, to determine whether I could live here. I chose not to. I chose Ireland not to do Ireland because I, I was, I'm going to get liver cirrhosis if I live here. Yeah, it was kind of hard on the liver. And sometimes like I would do things. I was saying yes to everything. That was my idea for Ireland. I just said yes to everything. So I'd, I'd say yes to things like, will you go in front of a school gymnasium and give a speech to the kids? And I'd say, oh, yeah, yes. But then someone would meet me and say, oh, I have tickets to this singer. She's really good. Come with me. And I'm like, OK. And then I'm, I'm with him, you know, and then. After the after the place shuts down, you know, the singer was quite good, but we're very drunk. He says, "I know, you know, I know the owner. We can go in back and drink, I'm drinking, drinking, drinking." And then then I'm like, "Okay, I'm stumbling back at four or five in the morning or even later." And I go back to this hotel room that had been given to me for free for <laughs> someone, and I've just got my bag there, and the, the bed's not even, you know, nothing's been changed in the room, and I just kind of flop face down on the bed. I lay there for a couple hours, and then I got up, and I'm wondering, "Why did I get up? I've only had two hours sleep." And I remembered, "Oh yeah, I promised I would give a speech at a school." <laughs> So then I rush down and someone says, oh, yeah, there you are. We wonder where you were. And I get in the car and he drives me out to some school. And then I'm like, you know, drunk, but the kids don't really notice it. I'm still drunk from the night before. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, good, they're young kids. So I just talk about strange things like cave spiders I found in Thailand or something, you know, or strange animals. And the, the kids are happy, right? <laughs> so it's like, it was like that day after day after day. You know, I'd be, I'd be going like, like, I think it was in forget when Waterford, maybe someplace like that. But anyway, someone had, I was walking along to do this uh, television interview that was going to be on top of a tower. And, but halfway there, unfortunately, a bar owner recognized me and uh, she called me in and says, Oh, here's whiskey, whiskey, whiskey. <laughs> and after a while, I just, I had to say this to this last glass, could you just put this aside? I've got to go good, do a television interview on top of that tower. And I don't want to be too cut. <laughs> so. I'll be back for it, though. I'll be back for it. Let me go when I could get up there and <laughs> do it. <laughs> yeah, oh, so I needed to relax my liver after that. It was tough. Yeah. How long were you out there in, in Ireland for? I mean, I did you, was, you actually went all around Ireland, too? Yeah, right? I went all around. I didn't, get up to, I didn't get up to the extreme north because the weather turned by the time I got there. It was kind of unfortunate. So I got up as far as the Giant's Causeway, and then I was going to go further north, but it started to be like blasting sleets of rain, and I had, I had to give up. Yeah, we also got as far as the Giants Causeway. Beautiful place, that. 
Lots yeah. of tourists. Lots yeah, of tourists. It's amazing. Yeah, there's not that many places. Like, it's quite a rare thing. I mean, you get you get Giants Causeway type environments like that basalt that that um, yeah. makes those columns. You, you see that a little bit in the Ethiopian highlands, and you know, We've of course, there's that. Yeah, of course, that that one um, village somewhere in Micronesia. They have a whole um, Nan Midal, that entire ancient city of mysterious origin. That's uh, um, has has the it's built out of those basalt columns. So they've taken them, stacked them like logs, and they made a fortress. But it's out in the reef. So that's the only place where they have a, an actual ancient city built of that stuff, like from mysterious origin. They have like pits for eels and more, you know, um, octopus or whatever they would have in this ancient city. You can kind of guess what they put in these pools because they were living right over on the reef. And then they had their walls and, and uh, towers and stuff made of these basalt columns stacked like they were logs. Fascinating. Nan Midal, did you say? Nan Midal, yeah, that's the one. It's in Micronesia somewhere. Yeah, it's quite fun to see that. In Micronesia, you see like old Japanese guns in the jungle or stuff that's been sunk <laughs> during war oh, or yeah. the Nan Midal. And, uh, it's quite interesting there, actually. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah the, Japs, the Japs, when they, when they took over that whole area, um, you know, there's a documentary on on one particular island. They'd actually taken over this island, and it was a it was a strategic point, and the states also wanted it. Um, they'd buried tunnels into this into this mountain, and you know, uh, the Americans had attacked, trying to weed out these these Japs, and it turned into subhuman conditions for the Japanese people in that environment. I mean, yeah. I. They were interviewing these, I think they're about 80-year-olds. They didn't say on camera that had it that it had reduced to cam- cannibalism. Mm-hmm. But you could bloody well see it, man. You could bloody well see it. You know, some soldier would be killed and then, oops, there's our food. <laughs> yeah, I met a girl who was an accidental cannibal. Oh, for like, fuck's I, I met her in Ecuador and then like... We'd been talking. I'm not sure if we did any, if we went on any tour together or did anything interesting. But you know, we've been chatting a little bit and uh, connected on Facebook. And then, like a couple of days later, she sent me a message where she said, "Do you think it's uh, okay if you eat human?" And I was like, sent a message back, like, "I'm not sure exactly what you're talking about." <laughs> I need more context. If you eat, you eat like human flesh, <laughs> is it you know bad for your health? Are you going to die? And I said, well, you know, I heard cannibals do it, and they they seem healthy enough. I mean, as long as you're not eating the brain. And I said, but I'm I'm curious why why are you asking? <laughs> and she told me her situation, and this was in um, Quito, uh, and she had gone out and found that there was one restaurant that served backpackers that was cheaper than all the others. So she was going there all the time, having their cutlets of meat. And then just when she was about to leave town, the police arrested the restaurant owner. And they found that, I guess, he was killing people in the alley or somehow he was getting hold of people and he was chopping them up and selling them in his restaurant meals. So she's had quite a bit. But that's, I think that's the only cannibal <laughs> that I met. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if I... <laughs> but I think that there was some sort of uh, maybe mental problems involved. And in it seems like a, a weird way to, uh, to run a business. Yeah. There's a lot of a uh, lot of anger, maybe hatred going on there. God, God, can you imagine that? Oh, dear, 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 dear. So, what, what, when things open up, when's where's the next place to go to, Mike? Well, uh, probably whatever opens up first. So, if I can get into Portugal, I might do that. Or if I get some friends are saying that Minsk might be open, and maybe I have a, a buddy who's going to test. Like he has a, a wife and a kid over in Eastern Europe, and he's trying to see if he can get out there somehow, and maybe he's thinking he can get through Minsk and then connect somewhere else. 
we'll see how all that goes. So I'm, I'm waiting for someone to risk the money to test it because I've already lost 600 bucks. So I, you know, I lost my flight. I had a flight out to Europe and they wouldn't let me board and I was out the money because it was too yeah. complicated a flight for me to try to reverse or to try to get credit for because I couldn't even get through the phone to say that I, you know, to, you know, ask their desk what I could do. So basically I'm out 600 bucks. So I, I'm going to have to wait and see what happens. Do you think the airline industry is going to be decimated by the, well, they are already decimated by this, but irrecoverably. Yeah. Well, they're going to need a lot of government help. Yeah, and I heard yeah. that Warren Buffett had a lot of money in uh, airlines, and he, he got out of them. And he probably yeah. knows more than we do about <laughs> the, the prospects for airlines. So, yeah, he's yeah. not putting his money there. Yeah. So, looking pretty bad for them. And I think a lot of these national characters, uh, carriers, it's going to be a, a good opportunity for the government to let them fold for the ones that are not viable. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's sometimes like, it, there's like a little bit of a fad that every, every nation should have a carrier, even if maybe your population doesn't justify it. So I think yeah. some of them are going to, you know, start to um, group together with countries nearby. Like maybe you'll have like the Scandinavian countries might all get together and say, we shouldn't have so many airlines and try to just have one that's supported. Or, you know, maybe uh, I think already Switzerland sort of went in with the French, and the, you know, so we'll have a lot of consolidation of that sort. Yeah, yeah. You have an in, you have an interesting story with the the pygmies of Congo. Yeah, the Bambuti pygmy tribe. Yeah, I ended up um, hitchhiking through the Rodenzori Mountains, where the UN had been trying to stop me because they were saying that no Westerner can make it through there alive because there's a lot of um, you know uh, insurgents and uh, you know genocidal attackers, all kind of things along the road there, and I ended up just going and hitchhiking, and it was a very rough. You know, you know, sometimes with this hitchhiking, the situation you get is like you're with a whole bunch of locals. And you're kind of pinned into some bouncing, rusting truck. And you can har hardly move and like your bones are getting sore. You're just being battered and you're bruised everywhere and it tears through your skin and you're bleeding. I mean, it's this kind of thing. <laughs> but I, I was bumping along with that. And to try to get food, you could find some locals who have like they caught some minnows out of a swamp. Or they have like a hot potato they're juggling and maybe you can flip them a coin and eat that potato. So you can, you can keep yourself alive. But it was, you know, sleeping in swarms of mosquitoes and mud huts. Or even just trying to curl up inside the truck with all the locals there, so <laughs> surviving like that. I managed to get over that, um, get over those mountains. And sometimes a whole bunch of you know rebels, or I'm not even sure who they are, militant groups would swarm out and they would occupy the truck. So we'd be bristling with weaponry, even some people with uh, rocket propelled grenades and machine guns, and then they'd just disappear again into the jungle, and we'd be you know for hours or even a day nothing. And then another militant group would pile on. So it's kind of interesting. And then then eventually I you know managed to get down through the Rodenzori toward the jungle. And I finished this ride of several days with, with this guy who gave me a ride in this truck. And I see that everyone else had been paying me. So I was saying, well, you know, how much? And I think he said 20 bucks. It was something very low. And I started to pay him 20 bucks. And he went, no, no, no. Of course, I'm just making a joke that's overcharging. And he named some extremely low price. I forget exactly what it was. I think I wrote it in my, in my book. But uh, yeah, it wasn't even 20 bucks for days and days of riding. I think he, it might even have been something like two or three dollars that he wanted its final price. So I ended up buying him some beers as well. But then I had to get into the jungle, so I had to find some people with motorcycles, and I would you know talk to them and try to find one who's not a robber and get him to agree to carry me as far as he was felt comfortable into the jungle. And and there we try to find another person with a bike who agreed to take me further, and then that guy would go back. So it's sort of like leapfrogging along on the back of motorbikes. And that was uncomfortable as well because you have some broken back of a motorbike with like jagged metal and you're bouncing along that. 
you know, covered in red dust and butterflies sticking to your face. <laughs> you know, one's coming over the jungle and like bruised and battered, <laughs> blood running down your leg. That kind of that kind of motorbike trip, right? And also with police trying to shake you down and all that. It's quite fun. It's just you and some dude you barely know and just he's carrying you along. <laughs> you wouldn't even want your own motorbike for that situation because you can't really get back. Like I wanted to move forward. And eventually after a while I was blocked. You know, I had, uh, you know, the secret police trying to stop me and there was no way to get further. And I wanted to float down the river. This is after I stayed with the pygmies for a while. I would wanted to continue floating down the river, but um the secret police were insisting that I'd have to bring a secret policeman along with me for the entire boat trip. And then it was going to take months because the water was very low. So would be stuck for weeks in various locations. And I would have to pay the hotel room for the secret police guy as well. And I thought, I'm not sure I want to spend that much. I mean, I don't mind the police sometimes, but I'm not sure I want to spend that much time with some Congo secret policeman. Why, why were the secret police so interested in you? Well, they were interested in any foreigner. So it's like um, they think they can get money. So be like I was with this Slovak guy, the same one that I'd gone out to do an expedition to live with the Bambooty Pygmies. And um, he was, first of all, he was telling me what happens if you're a photographer. So we had a, a camera around his neck and he just kept getting arrested all the time. And we were with him because, you know, I would maybe get arrested two or three times a day, but he'd get arrested eight times a day. Yeah, and then we'd, and then we'd have to talk our way out. So he, he had paid, I think, $3,000 to the chief of the secret police to, to have people not molest him. Whereas I had those fake documents and I was pretending to be someone working for the UN doing a security inspection. So I had a little clipboard and I was dressed accordingly. Sometimes you need a little strategy to do that, right? Because people always told me with the Congo, they just rob you blind and even your passport. And then you're done after the first day. So, you know, whereas, uh, you know, I needed a strategy that would take me further. But probably some of the funnest thing with the Congo was living with the pygmies, though. So I was out there hunting uh, antelope every day with spears and nets, living in little grass huts. We were deep, deep in the jungle. Even seeing when they get in a bit of altercation, when they get drunk, they turn from pygmies to more like little gremlins. <laughs> they start trying to kill each other. <laughs> we, had two, uh, we had two rangers with us that um, from you know the bigger Bantu tribes. They weren't they weren't uh, pygmies, but they were armed with automatic weapons, of course. And there's one of them getting drunk, and the, the more liquor he get, he got really, really like hillbilly drunk. And at that point, he was, you know, the pygmies were insulting them. He was insulting the pygmies. And he actually got really angry and said, I'm going to kill the pygmies. I'm going to kill the pygmies. And he's waving his gun around. So then we, we talked to the other ranger who was the more uh, senior. And we said, hey, you know, we hired you guys for protection against poacher gangs not to go killing the pygmies. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. So he goes and takes the gun and the knife away from the one he's, he got too drunk off this moonshine. <laughs> so... Uh, but then he feels kind of humiliated. So then he went over and started beating on this one pygmy who was especially lippy. And uh, he, beat the, he beat the pygmy bloody, actually. But the pygmy was quite tough. He just took the blows. But then, then this pygmy was drinking more. And my Slovak buddy, who's a medical doctor, was saying, oh, he's in alcohol withdrawal. He's got, like, the alcohol withdrawal syndrome. And I said, yeah. but he's still drinking. And he goes, yeah, some, some people are so vulnerable to alcohol that they're in withdrawal even while they're still drinking like they're having the, the weird nervous effects of the alcohol especially with this moonshine stuff that's probably half wood alcohol yeah yeah i drank a little bit and i was like oh that's enough for me you can really feel it. it's causing brain damage yeah all the women and children were going and hiding it went from like a disney movie to like a quentin tarantino movie right away so he, he was rampaging everywhere trying to trying to get in fights and all the and then the the uh, the one pygmy he beat up was complaining to the other pygmies but then they were saying back to him like hey when we were out hunting we think you were sleeping with our you know <laughs> we think you were sleeping with our wives no i wasn't but then like boom 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 they're fighting as well 
And finally, I was able to sort the situation out because I, I had a big um, bag of marijuana that I was going to give them as a parting gift. So I just thought, okay, they've had too much alcohol. They're too aggro, right? So I just took out and I gave like a handful of marijuana to each piggy. And you can see around their individual campfires, they, they spark up. It's, not, it's almost like, you know, with the, you know, in that, um, that Star Wars movie where he's turning off the shields for the Death Star. It's like, <laughs> you can see how they went from super aggro to super mellow right away. And well, that's a, that's a better drug for these pygmies. <laughs> you know, they're, they're like Iron Age tribesmen, right? So they get, even though they're extremely small, they get very rowdy. And they, they, the uh, ranger guys we hired were no better, right? <laughs> isn't, there, isn't there a sort of enmity between the, the Bantu as well as the pygmies? And how did this sort of arise? How did it come about? Well, the, the Bantu sort of consider the pygmies inferior. So they're almost like they think they own them. You know, I, I guess you could even use the word slave or serf. Maybe serf is more appropriate because not quite slave. But kind of like, slaves? I mean, like... Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I met some charity groups who were out there and they were trying to co-ed educate pygmy kids and bantu kids to try to say hey you're both human and that was having some success but you know they're, they're in a tribal mode where they're they're kind of feudal you know this whole idea it probably wasn't quite slavery but it's sort of um i didn't meet that many slaves or slave traders in africa or, or europe i'm or sorry or arabia i met a few but not many but i met more who had like a surf relationship with their um, with some sort of client tribe and quite often it was the pygmies who were considered the inferior ones but of course, the pygmies would disagree. But you know, but in the sense though, the bantus are bigger, so they have a domination just physically. Yeah, yeah. And you went, you went up there specifically to go live with the with the pygmies, correct? Or yeah. spend some time with them? Yeah. So I, I didn't know I, I went there specifically for that. But I met, I met this Slovak guy, and I was like, "What are you doing here?" You know, they told me no white man could come here and survive. And they still told me the same thing, right? So we we're like, "Oh, okay." Say, so, "Well, what are you here doing here?" And I told him, I'm just passing through. And he said, well, I'm just organizing an expedition to go see the bam- the bamboo pygmies. I spent weeks organizing it. And I said, hey, I want in on your expedition. And he said, well, you're not a photographer, are you? Because I don't want competition. Like, I'm supposed to try to make money off this. And said, but hey, I, I don't even have a camera. Well, I didn't even have a camera. So I'm like, hey, don't have to worry about me. I don't even have a camera, and I'll help you film if you want. So, yeah, so I was very easily – I slipped him a couple hundred bucks for all the supplies and sort of porters and everything he'd arranged and the guards and everything else. And so did, he even arranged the um, – Pygmy to English translator, which is a hard thing to find. Pygmy to French translator wouldn't have been so hard, but Pygmy to, Pygmy to English is kind of hard to find. And he even, met, he even had like a guy named Mustafa who was an expert at contacting or dealing with tribes, especially Pygmy tribes. So, yeah, he had a really nice expedition organized. And I just helped him for the last bit of organizing it, and then off we went. Okay. And he was hanging out as well with the Poison Arrow Pygmies. They were a bit rowdier. When they got drunk, they'd have machete fights. So he saw like one of them like cut through the collarbone of another one with a machete and the guy's arm was hanging. Then they had to both go hide because I guess they're not allowed to fight. So the Bantus has said they're not allowed to do these machete fights even when they get drunk. So um, yes, yeah, so they had to go hide in the jungle. I'm not sure how he got his collarbone knit. I guess there's probably some local witch doctor might have known a little bit. I wonder what the consequences for the, for the pygmy are should they get into fights. I mean, from the Bantu. Well, maybe the Bantu don't like them fighting. It's be like their Bantu king or supposed king. Doesn't want them getting too rowdy. And and also the Rangers, you know, try to keep a little bit of a uh, little bit of order. Even though they're they're also shake down the pygmies for money and for like give me an antelope or there'll be trouble like that kind of thing. So you know right. the the Rangers, the Rangers also operate like that. And in fact, all those Rangers like they all got shot up. So like a few months or maybe a year after you finished visiting. The, whole, the ranger station where we gone to hire those two guys got attacked by the uh, elephant poachers because they were, they were very serious rangers. Like they were really taking their job seriously. And I go, oh, wow. Like normally when you, you hire armed guards, they're kind of 
lazy, but these guys were alert. You know, okay, this, you know, there's some danger here. And then sure enough, like it, it was just a few months or maybe a year later, they got attacked and their okapis, which are a form of forest giraffe, got uh, slaughtered. These are the ones they were trying to protect in their reserve. And also a whole bunch of rangers got killed. But I, I checked, eventually I was able to find the list of who was killed and it wasn't Jacques or Desiree, the two guys we'd hired. So they'd managed to escape. So there's a bit of a slaughter going on there. Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty rough in the Congo. <laughs> you, you Rumble also, in the jungle. Yeah, yeah. You also made it out to Papua New Guinea. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty rowdy place too. That's like Stone Age tribesmen. Mm. Yeah, good fun though. You can see a lot of interesting animals. And the locals try to keep you alive because there's, there's so much robbery that you really can't function normally. But the locals were so friendly. Like when a, when a, a bus would pull in, they would all walk with me and this girl I was traveling with. They'd walk with us and make sure we actually got in the door of the hotel and then go back to the bus and carry on. So the bus wouldn't even go to the proper bus station. It would stop to let us off at some place where we could find a room. And the, all the men would come out and sort of uh, escort us and then, uh, make sure we were okay. Because they knew that the chance of being robbed was almost 100% otherwise. Because they're, they're quite rowdy there. I mean, they're, they're tribesmen who are <laughs> used to constant battle. No, but that wasn't the pygmies, right? There's also pygmies. No, no, this is like in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, in Papua New Guinea. But did you ever make it up to the pygmies? In Pap- there are pygmies in Papua New Guinea, aren't there? I'm not sure if they are. I didn't see any who were small like that. I mean, there may have been. I mean, I know I met some pygmies in... Um, I mean, a lot of pygmies just mean like a very, very small tribe. Yeah. There were some in... Where was it now? Oh, yeah, Colombia has some. By near... Uh-huh. Right near that uh, table. I'm of the headhunters. Then I'm thinking of the headhunters. They were sh- they're rather shorter than the than the western western people. Yeah, there's there's some who do who used to do a little bit of cannibalism. Maybe they still do, but they're more in the swamp. I didn't get up as far as that. The the oh. girl I was traveling with was willing to go you know a certain distance, but she wasn't willing to take extreme risks. She explained that she was the only daughter of her parents and she didn't want to get killed. But we did see we did see a few uh, rowdy things though. Some quite savage uh, woman beating. They're they're quite rough with their women there, and I think maybe the women have evolved for it a little bit too. Like the women are quite tough as well. Uh-huh. Like like for instance, a, a woman came up behind a man and killed him with a machete on the road, and then but then there's one situation where there's like this man was just beating down this woman like almost like mixed martial arts style, and it, the villagers started running over. And I was wondering, okay, they're going to break up the fight, but actually they started like kicking the woman as well when she was down, so no one was going to step in. And I was trying to figure out what was going on. And uh, eventually there was a guy who could speak enough English and he explained to me that, it, that that was his wife, so he's entitled to do with her as he wants. I guess she'd lipped him off by saying if he was going to go to the next town, leave enough money so, he, so she could buy food for the kids. And he became angry at this uh, challenge to his authority. <laughs> but, you know, they're not, all, they're not all like that, but it's just like there's a sprinkling of these people who have the old Stone Age you know, warrior mentality. <laughs> like, like, for instance, when we went through Mount Hagen, there was a woman burned at the stake. And then all the locals filmed her on their cell phones. She was burned at the stake as we went through because they accused her of being a witch. And she probably just had schizophrenia. I'm just making something up. I don't know really why they did that, but I'm assuming if they're calling her a witch, it must have been something was a bit off with her. Or maybe they just, she wasn't and they decided to burn her. You never know. I wasn't about to go over and investigate. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably a sensible move, that. Yeah, there's, there's limitations to what you can do as a, you know, a foreigner. Like a lot of people say, well, why don't you intervene in these situations? No. Well, you can't really help out. I mean, it's like, really, unless you're someone who lives there, you can't really assist with that. Like, let's say that woman who was being beaten. Maybe I could go try to intervene as a foreigner and stop it. 
But then, you know, what's my situation? I only had a few hundred dollars on me. I had to be out of there and, and get to where somewhere I could go to a bank. So I'm not going to be around more than a few hours. So imagine that, you know, the beating she got from her husband just from appearing to, you know, challenge his authority. Imagine if a, like a white foreigner had like intervened in such a way that he couldn't beat his wife as he thought fit. And all the village might have started laughing at him. And then as soon as I leave, which was inevitable, a few hours later, because I'm not willing to take this woman with me and I don't even have the means to do so. Yeah, then she'd really get a beating. So it's like there's limitations to what you can do. Like if you try to be too heroic, you can end up killed. Yeah, of course. Some of my friends have as well, you know, situations like that. Like one, uh, one uh, friend was uh, killed by his uh, yoga teacher. Yeah, he had a crazy yoga. yoga. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah yoga it? teacher. Yeah. Yeah, it's a guy named Justin Alexander. Yeah, I'd actually been talking, I'd been Skyping with him. He was asking advice for you. He was going to go up in the mountains. And he knew I'd done a lot of that. So we, I was just Skyping, doing, ask, you know, trying to give him some advice. And then he just disappeared right afterward. And I wasn't as worried because I thought, okay, he went up in the mountains alone. But then I found out later that actually he'd hired this yoga teacher. And he'd uh, posted on Facebook that he was a bit worried with the guy he hired because he just found out that this old man had chopped off his own testicles with a knife to show how holy he was. He's like, oh, no, if I don't come back from this cave in the mountains, you know what happened to me. And sure enough, he did not come back from the cave in the mountains. And then uh, eventually, like, his girlfriend in Los Angeles organized some search party and helicopters to look for him. And they found, like, his clothes, but not his like, recording gear. He had, like, gear probably well, like what you got there, maybe not quite as nice. And uh, that was gone because he was doing blogging and sort of vlogging as he was going along. So that was all stolen. But then the police arrested the yoga teacher. And unfortunately, before they could question him, he hung himself in the cell. So they never really know what was happening. So in a way, that's kind of an omission of guilt, or at least partially. So perhaps I'm just assuming that it's probably the yoga teacher killed him. Because that's the last guy he was seen with. And then uh, when some other tourists who were from Spain were walking along the path, and they saw like just the yoga teacher coming down from the cave and not the other guy. So you know, probably he got stabbed in the night or something. Good grief. Can you imagine that? Freaking hell. So that's one of those sort of... But here's, here's a weird thing I should add. Like, you know when I said about your sixth sense or your little sense should tell you it's not good? Like, he had, he had his unconscious was telling him strongly enough, this is not good, that he actually went and posted on Facebook, if I don't come back, you know what happened to me. Like, that's really a sign that your unconscious is kind of telling you, like, pick a yoga teacher who hasn't chopped his own balls off. Yeah, <laughs> just for safety's sake. <laughs> So when you when you get those sort of like uh, uh, unconscious well subconscious sort of things, do you immediately act on it? Or well, I always unconsciously act on it in a way that I give no sign that I'm acting on. Because you know, if someone's planning on doing something evil, like they're trying to lure you to an area and kill you, then if you immediately show that you're onto them, you might find that the suboptimal situation you're in now, from his point of view of robbing you, he might just think, well, this is as good as it gets, and he could pull out his gun or his knife right there even though you might be in an area where there's some people are reasonably nearby, but you might think he can still get away with it. So what you got to do, if you get that bad feeling, you pretend and show as if everything's fine. And if he's trying to steer you somewhere or get you to do something, you appear that you're really agreeing to that. But then almost as if by random, you veer off and now you're doing something else. And now you're with a bunch of people in a restaurant somewhere and uh, that plan gets dropped. So it's all like, you wouldn't want to signal that you're onto him. It's, it's like a, you know, it's a little game sometimes, right? <laughs> So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This sort of thing happens to you a lot. It used to, yeah. There's a lot of dodgy countries where that was quite uh, that was quite common. Yeah, there's a lot of countries where it's quite rough. Yeah, it's well, I was well used to that. 
Yeah. But, you know, things are more moderate now. I mean, like last year I was going to places like Bulgaria, hanging out on the beach. Uh, went through Turkey again for the eighth time. <laughs> you know, things like that. It's lovely. Turkey's lovely. Yeah, it is. I've kind of maxed on it in a bit because I've been there so much. Like I've, I've pretty much seen everything except for Lake Van I haven't seen. But, you know, mm. I've been near to Lake Van. I haven't actually technically seen Lake Van. Yeah. Well, where's the place with the, the, the great big salt? No oh, problem. yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. That one where it's like um, travertines. Yeah, yeah. P -p -p something or other. I forgot the name of it. Yeah. We arrived there at like six o'clock in the morning from an overnight bus because, oh, God, because we were in Israel. Hamas started to bomb us. All the flights were canceled into and out of, of, of Israel. And our turkey leg of the holiday was, you know, completely destroyed um, so we had to, we, instead of flying between places in, in Turkey, we, we caught the sort of like overnight bus, which was not really enjoyable because we, you know, the, 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 the driver would have this. Oh, I was going to say the buses are usually pretty good in Turkey. Well, I mean, it was okay, but, but like they had this like pumping music the whole night long. Um, so we arrived at six o'clock in the morning and, and we looked at this, this, this sort of salt mountain. And yeah, I just remember as soon as it opened, I started walking up it and, you know, tourists in their swimming costumes were sort of descending from the top going downwards. And here I am, Stuart, lugged with a great big luggage, walking all the way up. You're not allowed shoes. Um, and by the time I got to the top, it was like tourists, and you know, lovely bikinis and whatnot. And here I am with my lugging suitcases. The the security guards are busy blowing at me, blowing whistles at me because I'm wearing great big shoes on these salt things. You're supposed to go barefoot. And oh. I was fuck all of this. I'm just walking. And I was walking straight through this. Tourists are giving me rounds of applause. And oh, geez, it was fun. It was quite fun. That it was an enjoyable moment. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. I mean, for Turkey, I just try to do like not too much exciting happens there. So I just try to do odd things sometimes. Like, like one time I was just trying to hear like urban legends from carpet dealers. Do you know what oh, yeah. carpet dealers, they usually would have like these carpet shops. They try to lure in the tourists. And of course I'm never going to buy a carpet. I don't even have a home and I just have a backpack, but it was sort of amusing to go in there. They give you some apple tea and they'd always have like a, a young guy would come to talk to you and try to convince you to buy a carpet. And the old guy would usually stay in the back. But if you go to like dozens of these, you can eventually see that they, you know, these guys are bored and they just like to talk. And they'd all have the same story. So I thought it was funny. Like, I, I could remember the stories before, and I, think I can only remember one that they were all telling them. And it was always some, some urban legend that they would pass off as if it was true. Or maybe it is. But it was always like, oh, yeah, I had a rich uh, couple come in, and they, he would name, like, two different Western countries that they came from. And it would always be like, oh, and the wife was really hot. But then the guy said to me, oh, I'm impotent, and I can't service my wife. Will you do it for me? And then, you know, the carpet seller, who's a young guy, would always say, you know, of course I would say yes. But, um, but then he said, can I watch? And then, like, it was always a variation of that story. So I, I heard that story in every shop I went into. And there's a few other ones that were, like, the little urban legends they would always tell. I mean, it's probably bullshit. But it's funny that they would all tell the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. in Africa on the buses or even in South America, you have the people who come in to sell stuff. And, yeah. and in Africa, you got the preachers. They've got these yeah. little stories about what happened on the bus, and eventually there was a, a, a woman who was really the devil, and she caused the bus to crash, and then she right. turned into a goat, you know, this kind of thing. And now, <laughs> if you give me money, I'll, I'll do a prayer now so our bus doesn't crash. Like, you know, they have uh, these, yeah. 
Yeah. It'd be fun to go around and record these things. Like, they should be safe for prosperity. Because after a while, you know, the, these stories will be gone. Yeah. They're removed. The various countries. I have fond, mem- I have fond, fond memories of, of drinking on the, on the Bosporus. Um, there was a, a, a university professor. And, well, he, now Hakan has become a university pro- He's my friend. He became a, a university professor. But this other older fellow, he joined us. And, and the three of us were my, my girlfriend, wife, now wife. Um, we got onto our second bottle of Rucker <laughs> and my, <laughs> my wife looks at the table and she says, right, I'm going home. <laughs> um, should we, you know, um, and she's like, don't worry. The three of you stay here. I'm going home. So she went away home and, oh God, the three of us, we were walking arm in arm down. <laughs> <laughs> barely able to hold it up straight. It was a fantastic memory. I enjoyed that so much. I enjoyed it so much. The Bosporus oh. is so beautiful. So beautiful. Now, Erdogan is doing a, a good job at gutting that place. Yeah, yeah it's so, a bit of an authoritarian. But yeah. it's, it's almost inevitable, though. I mean, they couldn't really get in with Europe because of geopolitical reasons. And they're well-situated now where they're... Um, they're having a little bit of trouble now and that they're starting to get powerful, but they don't know in which area to expand their influence. And a lot of the regional, there's a lot of regional struggles going on. So for instance, the Russians are trying to get them involved in Syria. So it'll tie them down because they're worried that the um, Turks will start expanding their power into Bulgaria and other areas that are more traditional. Um, the Russians are trying to influence that. So they're trying to make sure that the, uh, the Turkish attention is focused to the South. So they're, they're kind of embroiled in some combat along those frontiers. And, of course, they always have their Kurdish problem, which other countries can always, you know, try to uh, rile up again. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a rough neighborhood that Turkey finds itself in, actually, if you look at the countries that it borders. But, yeah, their, their president has definitely gone the authoritarian route, especially with his $600 million palace that he just had built. Mm. And, you know, well, there's a lot of corruption going on politically. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's how it works, too, right? As mo- most countries are exceedingly corrupt. It's quite funny, actually. That they, you know, people talk about, they see the stats coming out of them and they pretend as if they're the stats you'd see coming out of New Zealand, right? Like, New Zealand's probably 98% correct in everything they say. And if they say this is going on or that's going on, it's probably correct, right? They, the corruption's probably minimal. But most countries is just through the roof. I'm insanely corrupt. Yeah. He, I think he's, an, he's aspiring to be a new sultan, that guy. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and often they do. I mean, that's what happened with Saddam Hussein as well. He wanted to be like one of these ancient emperors. Yeah, and uh, you know the guy, the guy in Sisi, in, in, um, yeah, I think it's Sisi in Egypt now. He's getting kind of authoritarian as well. Yeah, like yeah. one of my buddies used to be the security advisor for Mubarak before him, like trying to give him advice on how to stay in power. It's a yeah. it's a, it's a rough business to, to uh, maintain your dictatorship in uh, countries like that. And of course, the only possible ruler for a place like Egypt is probably going to be, if he's not a dictator, he's probably going to turn into at least a quasi-dictator in the sense of trying to keep power. I mean, the current one's a military guy straight up. But, you know, Egypt has got their problems too, right? They have the, the Ethiopians are expanding, and they're going to start taking some water. And once that happens, it's going to leave not enough water for Egypt. So you, you never know if it's going to kick off there. Yeah, the, the crown sits heavy on the head, the dictator, the dictator's yeah. head. And a lot of these countries, it's hard to see. Like, you couldn't really govern them. If you're like Justin Trudeau, you would completely fail to govern, you know, a lot of these countries. If you were Justin Trudeau in, in charge, like the Canadian prime minister, and you were in charge of uh, Egypt, you completely failed and you'd be overthrown almost immediately. Oh, yeah. 
a lot of these places are rough, rough neighborhoods. Now, Trudeau, Trudeau selected a what his what do you call him a panel or or advisors purely based on 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 gender. Or, I mean, not yeah. gender. On yeah, he wanted half women. Yeah, so he was he was picking half women, even if the women. I mean, some of them were qualified, like Christina Freeland, I think her name was, and some of them maybe not so qualified. But it's you know he was more like he's signaling, which you know in a sense maybe he's politically astute. You know, he managed to get himself elected. But you know that kind of thing wouldn't work in a lot of these countries. You'd have to yeah. pick the warlords, you know, to be in your government, you right? Know, with the real power. You know? And if you're in the company of warlords, you know, it's like if you're the leader, if you're the alpha wolf in charge of a wolf pack, you can't be like a weak alpha wolf. Yeah. You know, Get a yeah. So, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. But um, yeah, I would have helped that. I would have hoped that humans would maybe become a bit more civilized. But you know, I think we're slowly, slowly getting slightly better. It's like then we take a few steps back and then we stagger forward a bit. So I think we're slightly ahead of where we were maybe 50 years ago. Mm. Well, I mean, looking at Stephen Pinker's book, I mean, he's he's mentioned that, you know, um, we've lifted so many people out of poverty. Um, you as somebody, I think it's called Enlightenment Now. Uh, oh, Pinker's yeah, I've heard, I've heard that book. I don't think I read it, but I've heard of it for sure. Yeah. Um, well, you as somebody on the ground, have you noticed this over the years? Yeah, it's got better. Yeah, for sure. It's it's even noticeably better. And the thing is, I can notice, but other people not so much. Like, like sometimes I'd be traveling with someone who doesn't have as much experience with developing countries. And we'd go through town after town. And afterward, they would say to me something like, oh, it's such awful poverty we saw on this entire trip. And I go, oh, that's not what I thought at all. Because I would think, okay, here's a moderately prosperous town. Oh, here's a town that's really poor. And oh, this town is great. I mean, look, they can afford those bright red Chinese buckets. I mean, those are 75 cents each. And look, a, a lot of a lot of towns, you know, a lot of the uh, people in their mud huts have a bucket each. So there must be some kind of trade. Like I can kind of see that they had some commerce coming through there. And then you come to another place, go, oh, this area must have. This probably going to be abandoned. I mean, there's really poor fields here, and the people are dirt poor. Like there's all these gradations of poverty that I was aware of. And it, you know, if I was trying to do business there, or if I was trying to set up where to live, I'd be able to pick the town that's actually going to become the more prosperous one instead of the one that's going to disappear. But the other Westerners who'd be with me, like, let's say, on the same local bus going through, they just saw grinding poverty, grinding poverty, grinding poverty. They couldn't differentiate between them because, you know, they're used to something being 500 at least out of 1,000. And I'm finding, like, this is two and this one's triple, this one's six. Like, I'm noticing these little small things that they wouldn't notice. But it mm. makes a big difference because the ones who are slightly ahead sense things are unfair and how the earth works. The ones that are slightly ahead would then become, like, the prosperous town. And the town that's a little bit behind becomes like the, the desolate area that's of no economic value at all. And people might even abandon it. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you have to have an eye for this grades of poverty that are beyond what anyone would consider, you know, acceptable, like way below what people consider acceptable. And I've noticed that over the years, it's got slightly, slightly better. I'm not seeing the same kind of poverty I used to. Like even in Europe, you know, there were places in Europe where the people would be taking the chestnuts off the chestnut trees to, to eat like in Moldova and things like that. And then, you know, I've noticed recently that the, even the chestnuts in Moldova, I, I was back there even last year, you can see that no one's picking them anymore. So that's something, you know, you can see when that happened in Thailand, like you had places where they picked the cashews and they picked the mangoes. Then you got some of those towns got so prosperous, the cashews and mangoes were just rotting. They were all busy with whatever was a new enterprise. No one wants to be the one picking mangoes. So you can see that the economy is, you know, getting a little bit more advanced. And of course, you say, well, where do they get the mangoes? Well, by that time, it wouldn't be some little tree that you got to hike up to. It'll be, you know, an orchard of the things, and it's more mechanized. Yeah. So it's all it's all developing. 
the, the world is it's getting much richer for sure. On, on the point of uh, making business, I mean, you've got a, a section on in, in your book about how you actually go about making money. I, I find this absolutely fascinating. Um, the way you sort of look at a situation and you think, right, I can turn a dime here. Mm-hmm. If you want to go into that and some of the, some of the, the more of your interesting uh, uh, entrepreneurial uh, endeavors. That well, okay. Well, one, I'm not sure if I told the story in the book. I don't know if it made it in, but I noticed that there's some people in Java were cutting down their coffee plantations. And they're going, why are you doing this? And they're saying, well, these are robusta coffee. They get too big. And after a while, it's a pain in the ass to try to get the cherries off them, you know, with the, the coffee being inside. It's better to just cut them down. And I said, well, what are you doing with the wood? And they're like, well, it's being sold as firewood. Mm, interesting. Okay. So, uh, so I was buying up this, like, the trunks of these coffee trees, and I brought them to furniture manufacturing shops in Bali. And at the time, it was very cheap to, to get things manufactured in Bali. And I was saying to these guys, can you make, like, tables out of this? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's doable. It's doable. And I said, can you make them all, like, with quite short legs, like, quite low to the ground? Like, show me some designs. And I get them to do some prototypes. And I go, okay, some of this, some of this, some of this. And then once I felt that they'd established, like, good prototypes, I was like, okay, can you make, like, 5,000 of these, 3,000 of these? You know, giving numbers like that. And they go, oh, it'll be six months for that. You know, leave a certain amount for the, you know, down, down payment. And then come back in six months. And so I would do that. I'd leave, I'd leave the money. They're very trustworthy in Bali. Part of the reason I was doing business there for, for trying to make this furniture. And I'd go travel around. And finally, I'd, I'd come back to check on them once. And I'd see, okay, they're, you know, it's coming along all right. Maybe pay them a little bit more installment. And then I'd, I'd go off again and finally come back, pay them for, the, for what they'd made. And I, in this case, I shipped them out to Seattle. And then I... You know, of course, they're crossing the ocean. You know, I had to go through certain areas where there's a lot of rebellion. I couldn't even get uh, insurance on trucks. They were being attacked by, you know, they were almost falling into civil war at that time. But it, but I had to cross Surabaya where there's a lot of unrest and finally go to Singapore and across the ocean to Seattle. So I was just traveling in the meantime. I was up in Nepal and, you know, India and all that. And finally I'm thinking, okay, you know, my shipment's arriving. And I'd fly, I flew back to Seattle, landed it. And then, okay, time to wholesale it. So I looked up some places that might buy furniture. <laughs> And I'd go in and just like cold call, like I just arrive and I'd have some samples in the back of a truck I rented. And I'd just go in and find someone to talk to and then say, mm, I've uh, got some tables for sale. And i say, you want to come out to my truck? I'll show you some samples. And they'd be kind of like, mm, you know, looks, looks okay, looks okay. What, what do you want for them? And I'm going, $40 each. And they're going, oh, you know, I don't know, $40 for a coffee table. Because, of course, you know, it's low to the ground, so it's, they call it a coffee table. And this is my whole thinking all along. Because I wanted to be able to say this one thing. And I said, no, it's not just a coffee table. It's a coffee coffee table because it's made out of coffee wood. And I'd explain that it was made out of the trees. From the, and they'd, they'd suddenly see their eyes light up. They knew that was a little gimmicky selling point, right? And they go, okay, okay, I'll take 200 or I'll take 500 And, you know, pretty soon I'd have them all sold. I was getting them for 10 bucks. I was selling them for 40 So my money just goes, boom, times four, right? And then i just, like, pocket all that cash, stuff it into my bag, and then i just keep traveling. And then I'd look for something like that to come up again. So, you know, I did like wooden chickens at one point because I could, I could make a similar markup. I did uh, jewelry <laughs> for quite a bit. You know, I'd, sometimes I, you know, I was younger, I'd just buy jewelry for super cheap and um, then take it out and do like the, the uh, folk music festival or like the other like concert festival scene in North America. Just get a truck and put a kiosk in back and just drive around to these big outdoor festivals. We have thousands of people gathered to hear musicians. And just like sell silver jewelry to the girls walking by. It's kind of a nice lifestyle that counts as travel as well, right? <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Good fun. 
yeah, lot, lots and lots of fun business ideas like that. But what are the what are the some of the most um, sort of like edge cases though the the ones that sort of like are you know even you were surprised by not so I mean the chicken one is actually pretty maybe you can go into the chicken one like it was a similar story to the coffee tables wasn't it in the sense yeah, that well, you thinking, so here's one that made a lot of money really quick I'm not sure if this is my in my book or not but in mm-hmm. Scotland I noticed that there was this box that they dug out of the bog. And it was from a long time ago, like we're talking Middle Ages or Dark Ages or something like that. But it was in really, really good condition. And it had a beautiful designs on it of um, like carved stylized heather. I think it was meant to be like berries and leaves, but, you know, carved in wood. And I thought, well, this box would make a really good like geranium box or something you could put on a windowsill. So, you know, once again, I, you know, managed to get prototypes made. It was absolutely beautiful. And I could get them for, I think it was $6, something like that. It might even been less. And I thought, oh, wow, I can make at least times seven on this. So I had thousands and thousands made. And sure enough, they went with absolute hotcakes. Like, you know, I couldn't even keep them in stock. You know, they, they arrived after coming across the sea, and I just, like, sold them almost immediately for times seven what I paid for them. And the chickens were something similar, right? I met that guy. He was a carver of wooden chickens, a guy named Diwata. And uh, his chickens were amazing. And at that time, the currency was collapsing in his country. So I found that I could get them for a dollar and a half each. And I thought, oh, I can sell these pretty quickly for six bucks, right? So I got them to make thousands and thousands and thousands of them and shipped them out. And then I was selling them in Vancouver this time. And I found some woman who rented kiosk space in malls. So I rented space in two malls, like 10 days and 10 days. And over the course, I was just selling them massively fast because I, you know, I'm getting it right from the producer. And instead of like several people each doubling, it was just me taking the profit. So because I'm directly selling, they, you know, these like wealthier ladies would come to the mall and see them there on this little display. And they would think they're more unique than they really are. Cause actually I had thousands, but uh, <laughs> I had to sell them for times for what I paid for, right? which was like well under what you'd normally do. Cause normally like the importer takes times two and the other person takes times two and then finally the shop takes times two. So, you know, it's, it ended up being cheaper with me selling direct like that. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not sure if you can do this cash stuff anymore. Like a lot of it was because most people are afraid to walk around with cash. I used to walk around regularly with fifty thousand, even a hundred thousand dollars in my bag. So, you know, but because you also I had a knife too. Yeah, yeah, knife and my money, right? And I try to like keep it hidden that I had that money. Like even through war zones, they didn't want anyone to see I had you know eighty grand or fifty grand or hundred grand or whatever I had. But that was my float for business. And then because back then the banking didn't work, it meant that you could someone with cash, you know, became the person who could really get a good deal on things because cash in hand was really immensely useful. And the other businessman, you might see him see a deal. He couldn't take advantage of it because you can't get anything wired in. Like if you tried to use their local banks and get stuff wired in, someone at the bank office would just steal your wire. You know, it was, it was that corrupt. Even within the national banks, it was corrupt. Good so grief. Like, like like, yeah. So I met like Ruby dealers in Burma who try to wire in money from Singapore and they find out that they, you know, the bank stole it. You know, it was really, really hard to do business. But just the fact that I had cash meant that I could actually do business as I went and get this proper markup, whereas the, the regular businessmen were afraid to carry the cash, which means that they were not in the market. So it meant there's very, very few people buying, which meant that, you know, there's no one bidding up the prices. So I was just, you know, able to get quite reasonable prices. So it worked that's out. That's an well. interesting way of, of – that's actually that, – that's very interesting. Considering corrupt banks and in an environment where – well, pretty much you're the, you're the only one who's able to with such a huge float at the same time. God, you, that actually yeah, opens up a lot of cash itself as an entity, right? Like it's, it's also something that's supply and demand. So if there's yeah. very few people who have cash on hand and you're one of the only ones, well, then cash is in short supply. 
But, you know, if all these businessmen can go through very safely and they can just go to the local bank and get out money and buy stuff, well, then there's a lot more people coming in. Like, like you notice when, like, the first thing, you get a dodgy country, there's almost no one there. Maybe there's me trying to do a bit of business or, or just hanging out because it's cheap, you know, living off a dollar a day. But then, you know, after a while, it starts to get a bit safer. And then usually you get the guys who are there, they're, they're kind of like bar stars or they're more interested in women or something. They start to show up. And that's kind of... Uh, and then you see like more kind of dodgy looking business people showing up. And sometimes they're more like hippies or something. You just want to buy handicrafts. You see them uh, arriving. And then finally you get like guys who are like regular. They're used to going to the disco in Italy or something. When you see them showing up, you know, okay, it's now completely safe. And you'd almost want like a little bit of civil war just to get rid of them because they're kind of annoying people. You know, they're just there to bang chicks and stuff. So <laughs> they're not, not uh, I mean, okay, it's one way of traveling, but it's like not my favorite way. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> yeah, but then of course there's a bit of civil unrest and these guys disappear again. And then you're, yeah. you're back. I, I kind of like these places that were just opening up, and you just get the people who are more like either there's some sort of individual business they're doing, or they're like more hardcore backpackers that are you know willing to really see what's going on in a culture. And then uh, later things can get overdeveloped after a while, and it's, it's more like the hotel experience is a bit too sanitized. Yeah. So so what about? What about sort of like as a way to uh, combat the, the corruption in the banks? Would you see? Do you see um, the up, like people like, for example, using Bitcoin or something like that? Um, well, I'm not sure what they're doing now because you know now since cash is not that useful, then business is less profitable because now there's so much competition in places from all these people going around. They can all buy whatever. So, you know, things have kind of, same thing happened with fish. Like you used to be able to like make money buying and selling fish, but now all the fishermen, even in the most remote island, know exactly what a lobster costs in New York City. And so it's all like, you know, they caught one, it's immediately on a flight out there. You know, they, they know the price of everything. Like it's all global now. And when it's global like that, it means there's not as much, like basically what I was doing was some sort of arbitrage. You know, I was finding areas where something's way cheaper than what it should be and taking advantage of that. But it's almost getting like the currency where like, you know, the automated traders have brought it down to a, a ten thousandth of a cent or whatever they've done for the the difference between currencies and what it ought to be. Well, it's the same thing now with all these goods. It's really making it flat, and that means if you want to be someone who's succeeding at business, you need some different skills. So maybe like um, maybe you need to be doing something in online payments or who knows what. Like I have a Brazilian friend doing a business in Nigeria now, and he's doing one of these micro payment things you do over your cell phone. He's doing quite well at that. Yeah, and I feel kind of good about that because I advised him to go out there. Because he was talking to me and he said Brazil's becoming a shit show. I think you're aware of their new president. A little bit uh, <laughs> unusual fellow. But anyway, he was wondering where he could go for business. And I said, hey, go to Nigeria. And I said, if you don't trust anyone there, you can make lots of money. Because they, the people are so um, – they lack social trust. So they, they're all um, – because they're trying to grasp any money that's at hand, they're like kind of discounting tomorrow. They're more like just trying to make day-to-day. So if you go in there and you – get a reputation as someone who's actually has what you say you have and it's for sale the way you said it, you're, it's going to be for sale. Your reputation can become extremely good and, and a lot of people will come to you to do business. And as long as you don't ever, you know, don't ever front anything to anyone, like you don't ever just give someone some product without it being paid for it. So it's got to be, you know, cash at hand at exactly the time that the product changes hands. But if you follow that rule, then you'll find out you can do quite well in business there. And sure enough, you did. Because the, the people there were kind of desperate for some sort of social trust, which is what they, they're lacking at the moment. Because, you know, people who are coming out of extreme poverty, they're often, they'll grab at anything, even if it would have been better to sort of wait and, and, you know, slowly build a business relationship. 
you know, they're kind of um, more like grasping. If they can get away with $1,000 now, it doesn't matter if they could have made 10 over the course of a year. They'll just yeah. go for the short term. Yeah, I'm not trying to blame them for it. It's just it comes from you know. No, it's just the way it is. I mean, in this, in their scenarios, like you, you are un, any, you are unable to do any forecasting into the future, and 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 you know, cash in hand, you know, a bird in hand is better than two in a bush, kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I recall being in 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 Rwanda, and uh, I was invited to be a judge at one of these. Like Rwanda's got a hacker space over there, and. Um, Whole bunch of guys, young young guys, came into the hacker space, and it was like a twenty four hour like a hackathon, basically. And um, at the end of the uh, the thing, sort of walked in and sort of checked out these things. I was shocked. I was shocked because uh, these guys were writing these small little applications, which was able to use this mobile telecommunications infrastructure, which had opened up and the, the ability for you to send cash via these uh, telecommunication uh, uh, systems which we don't have in the West. Oh, we don't wow. have that. So it was yeah. like, it was like, it was unbelievable how, how, how mobile cash can be in those environments. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Absolutely. If you can't trust your banks, I guess it's an opportunity for FinTech. Just the way yeah. it was where you couldn't trust your national telephone company. I mean, it used to be like $20 to make a, a very short call, you know, between areas because you had these monopolies that were sort of corrupt, you know, oligarchs in control of them. And if you can get around them, the people can really thrive. So yeah, that's what's yeah. going on with African technology. But unfortunately, Africa, it's, it's going to have a good run for a bit, but it's almost coming to the end. Because you have a situation Why? now where there's cheap capital for a while, but the cheap capital is about to dry up. Because the, you know, the older people, like the West is full of older people, so, so is Asia now. It's older people who are in the peak earning years. So some of them are getting up around even 50, 60 years old in Germany, or some other places are 50 plus. They're getting quite old in a lot of areas, Korea as well, everything. And when you're, um, as you get older, you're getting more and more skilled at your job and you're starting to um, accumulate, you're starting to make a lot more money and you're starting to, you're saving a lot more money because you know your retirement's coming. And, you know, supply and demand. So if these, if these accounts and, and banks are finding this money coming in, well, they have money to invest. So it actually drives down the, the cost of capital. But what's about to happen starting in the next few years is the old Westerners and old Asians, who are most of the people who have money around the world, they're going to start retiring. So all of a sudden, their governments will be in trouble because all these high tax-paying people will be retiring. There's no millennials in most areas to replace them. It's not like a, a dip in, in population. Like the, demographically, most of the West is hollowed out, and so is Asia. So you know the, the taxes are going to dry up just at the same time where the banks empty out. So you know Germany's already had this problem where there's not enough deposits. So capital is going to have to come up in price, and it's just at the time where in Africa could desperately need some capital. It's all going to dry up. So you know whatever they're going to build, they've got to they've got to uh, you know they got to hope they've already got it built, or the, you know because they're it's going to become a lot more expensive to do it. And remember, Africa geopolitically is a, a poor situation. I mean, they're poor for a reason. It's like a very old soil there, not very productive. They don't have any um, ability to use internal rivers to uh, reduce the cost of moving things. You know, it's not like the north plain or something. You need, yeah, you need uh, you need to be able to move barges on a river. They don't have internal. Internal navigable rivers, they don't have it really. They have a few long rivers, but they're almost useless. So, in, and a lot of other disadvantages. I mean, it's very hard there. Got a lot of tropical disease. It's hard to deal with. They don't have a lot of ports at all, like as you were just mentioning, I think. So, you know, you go, you go down that coast there. Like to find a port along the either coast of Africa, Africa is really difficult. Like you go to one U.S. state and you probably find more ports than you would in all of Africa for good quality ports. 
you know, so it's uh, it makes the, the cost of moving things really, really difficult. You have to move it by train, and it's more expensive than if you move it by barge. So, yeah, so it's geopolitically, they're, they're not, in, not in a good situation. So they're, they're kind of reaching their, their maximum soon. Sounds like, it sounds like if you've got enough money, you might want to build a port. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's hard to get involved in that. I mean, there, there's so much corruption. I mean, you know, yeah. I would see, like, some Nigerians or even, like, they would come all the way down to South Africa to try to get work done on things. You say, well, why don't you have it done locally? They, well, the, the ports are so corrupt. And you can't, uh, horrendous corruption problems. And you can't, you can't really fix that either. It's, it's hard. It takes hundreds of years to fix these problems. Yeah. But what I'm hoping is there might be a tech solution. Because, you know, the, the way technology is developing, it's very, very fast, much faster than a lot of people thought. And there might be tech solutions to a lot of these things. Because, you know, so the soil is really worn out in Africa. It's the oldest continent. It's been leached by half a half a billion years you know it's really really old but perhaps with some of this new agricultural technology maybe they can get around that or you know they've got solar panels getting cheap enough maybe africans can you know I, i'm always hopeful for the future maybe tech can give them a chance you know even if by conventional means it seems like they can't succeed perhaps tech can give them a bit of a boost yeah. you never know where, where, where would your foxhole be in the world now I mean, if it all goes to a shit show, where would your where would your foxhole be if you were to put down roots, settle down? Oh, down roots. I'm not sure if I'm really like um, I've got my money in Standard and Poor 500 in the U.S. because I think they'll do best. You know, even though they're very unstable, everyone else is even more unstable. So I think that's probably the best place to invest because you know they're the reserve currency. So you know that's why they have such an easy time borrowing. So the the chance of being able to get your money back in 10 or 20 years is much higher with the U.S. So I keep you know what money I have in that. And otherwise, you know, I think mobility rather than putting down roots is the safest place. If you put down roots, you're kind of stuck to some place. You never know how unstable it's going to get. Whereas if you just have a backpack, you're just up and gone, you know, next day. So I just kind of keep maximum mobility over the planet and uh, let that take care of my security. And also it takes care of my fun because it means you have a, a constant uh, change. And especially if you can keep track, which is very cheap now to keep track of a lot of people around the world. So you can have hundreds of friends in, in every country. And just kind of roam around that way. So I, th I think maximum mobility is safest, rather than try to build some sort of, you know, um, fort. Yeah, if you got some sort of fort built somewhere, and then all of a sudden, you know, don't know who's going to be elected. It's like with Brazil, right? Imagine you thought, oh, Brazil's doing good. And then you've got the latest uh, president seemed to say some crazy things. I mean, I don't know for sure, but my Brazilian friend was saying he was seemed to be uh, quite crazy, and uh, <laughs> not necessarily good for the markets. So you never know what's going to happen, right? Whereas well, I mean. Direct, it reflected reflected directly in in the in the infection rate in Brazil, which has now surpassed United States now. Ooh. Well, you have a good example with South Africa. So South Africa um, has a lot of problems. So imagine if you had your your nest egg was all somehow tied into South Africa, and there was no way to escape that. Then you'd always wonder every year what's going to happen next, because a lot of a lot of crazy things go on. Well, that's one of. The, wasn't there a lot of corruption with your last president, or something like that was going on? I think I read that. Well, yeah, it's one of the main reasons why I moved out to Hong Kong, because I mean, like, the country has a, a even maintaining electricity supply is is difficult for for, you know. We went on holiday, and and there's there's basically a schedule that says, okay, right, okay, there's going to be a cut of electricity from two and the two and two thirty in the afternoon till I don't know eight p.m. or something like that. And you can actually download an app for your mobile phone, which will tell you when to do this. Oh, my wow. wife, one look. Okay, she's from Hong Kong. You know, she, yeah. 
never has electricity being cut out here. She nearly fell on the floor laughing. They, <laughs> they spent so much time, you know, like developing applications on how to, you know, pr- you know, route around or, you know, not be affected by this thing. Why don't you just solve the problem directly? Yeah, it's like, yeah, I don't know, Africa. It, and also it's very racist, very racist, very racist. Yeah, I did, I did meet some racists. I, I didn't meet a lot, but I met like maybe, maybe six to eight racists, like extreme racists. Yeah. You know, I was just hitchhiking around. So I'd be talking to black people, white people, whoever would pick me up. And they're all quite friendly. But occasionally I would meet these extreme racists. And, and even a long time ago, I met the opposite of the extreme racist. I met this guy who must have been an old Rhodesian black guy. And he picked me up hitchhiking. This was like in the early 90s or mid-90s, something like that. And he kept calling me master. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not comfortable with that. <laughs> Don't call me master. You could see he was used to that whole, I'm not sure what they had going on in Rhodesia, but it seemed like not so good. <laughs> you know? but, but back, this is um, early, maybe it was mid-90s. I was finding that... Um, it's a weird thing there. So I was traveling around. You know, I went to Zimbabwe. I went out to uh, – didn't make it to Zambia. I went to Botswana. But I found, like, a lot of the other travelers, they kept complaining, saying, oh, it's so hassly, so hassly. Like, you get all these guys coming up trying to hassle you. And I said, no, I didn't notice that at all. They said, well, what about the borders, like, all the hassle you're getting? No, no, no hassle at all. I couldn't understand it. I was getting no hassle. You know, and I, and I was young and kind of fit, you know, back then. But I thought, well, not so formidable that I'd be able to – immediately drive away everyone who should be hassling me. I thought it was a strange uh, mystery. But eventually I figured it out when some police stopped me. They said, we have to take a look at your uh, rocket launcher. Is that a rocket launcher? And I said, no, no, that's a, that's a camo tube, but it's got a fishing rod in it. But for some reason, like all the Africans thought it was a rocket launcher. So I'm almost thinking back now, like they might have thought I was some sort of mercenary traveling through and I had a rocket launcher. <laughs> they were saying, hmm. Oh, better not fuck with this guy. Yeah, they're thinking, which tourist to hassle? Hmm, that one who looks like he's from Hong Kong. That other one looks like from England. Oh, the, like, the dude in the, with the camo uh, rocket launcher? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good strategy. We'll use that one. <laughs> that's just when zimbabwe was falling apart they had uh they had quite a corrupt leader i mean i think he's dead now that the mugabe Mugabe, yeah yeah he's dead yeah yeah i can see that was going bad because you know that he was immensely wealthy like on lake kariba you can see him and his buddies they're all i didn't see him particularly but his buddies for sure they all these villas and they were going around their yachts and powerboats and everything drinking and partying then you go into the villages and you see nothing like absolutely devastatingly poor he cared nothing for them and then some of the locals were telling me that he had uh, groups coming in killing them and uh, oppressing them and all all kind of stories i was hearing there and i thought oh, well, okay this country one not one you whoops we ran into technical difficulties unfortunately ran out of disk space um but three hours is quite enough so mike and i we exchanged pleasantries and said goodbye to each other uh, finished off on that story and then i went to go have lunch um so i mean thanks mike thank you very much for doing this podcast and um if if any of you guys ever meet Mike on the road, please do show him a good time. 